So six episodes into the show, I realized that Select and Start doesn't have a proper theme song, so I decided to give it one. The problem is I'm not a musician. I, I can't sing, and I don't know how to play any instruments, but I'm going to give it my best shot anyway. Like with every other part of my show, it goes without saying that I apologize for what you're about to hear. All right, let's do it. Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts, so let's select a game and press start. I'm sorry. There's a famous quote from the artist Brian Eno that goes, The first Velvet Underground record only sold 30,000 copies in its first five years. I think that everyone that bought one of those copies started a band. Originally released in 1967, The Velvet Underground and Nico was a commercial failure. Neglected by its label, ignored by critics, and overlooked by contemporary audiences. It was an album with little mainstream appeal. Frontman Lou Reed's lyrics, based on observations from his own life, contained references to BDSM, sex work, and drug addiction, and was backed by an eclectic, experimental sound that defied the genre convention at the time. The controversial lyrics and uncommercial sound meant that radio stations refused to play it, many stores refused to sell it, and the band's own record label had no intention of promoting it. Only in subsequent decades was its impact apparent. Then, it was an expensive mistake. Now, it's a foundational album. Jonathan Richmond was so obsessed with the album that he formed his own band, The Modern Lovers, an influential proto-punk band with members that would go on to be in The Cars and Talking Heads. Sonic Youth, a major force in a noise rock scene, owed their sound to the Velvet Underground. Iggy Pop of the Stooges revered the Velvet Underground and his close friendship with Lou Reed inspired both of them to be better artists across their lifetimes. It was an album that not only advanced genres, it created stars. Legendary acts like R.E.M., The Smiths, Joy Division, Talking Heads, David Bowie, and The Strokes had this album in their DNA. It is a record that found its way from the avant-garde to pop. Its versatility and eclecticism, which made it unmarketable on its release, was eventually what made it endure. It is now among the most influential albums in rock music, standing alongside the likes of Abbey Road and Pet Sounds. Earthbound released in 1995, but its impact on its fans and game developers wouldn't make itself apparent for many years. Not unlike The Velvet Underground and Nico, it was tragically overlooked during its release, but it eventually found a devoted following. It was a game unlike any other, ahead of its time on release and eminently playable even by today's standards. The game's director, Shigisato Itoi, was something of a media celebrity in Japan. He was a prolific copywriter, a TV host, a songwriter, and an actor, appearing in My Neighbor Totoro in a film adaptation of the novel Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami, a writer with whom Shigisato previously co-authored a short story collection. Interestingly enough, Norwegian Wood was named after a Beatles song, one that John Cale, a founding member of the Velvet Underground, specifically cited as an inspiration for him and Lou Reed. Shigisato Itoi lived a varied life, and he incorporated his assorted experiences into a game that is both absurd and deeply personal. Underneath its deceptively simple visual style was an emotionally mature story propelled by unique yet refined gameplay. It was a game of harmonious contradictions. Japanese developed, yet aesthetically western. Satirical, yet sincere. Bizarre, yet moving. More bizarre than the game and its creator was how it was marketed in North America. Two million dollars was spent on its advertising campaign that contained the slogan, This Game Stinks. This, alongside an unusually high price tag of $80, alienated contemporary consumers, who missed out on a game that would come to be known for the profound impact it had on its players. Not only was the game impactful, it was influential, directly inspiring popular works such as Undertale, Amori, Lisa, and Yume Nikki. Its simplicity on the surface inspired first-time developers, and the depth underneath inspired moving, 
thoughtful writing. Both Earthbound and The Velvet Underground and Nico's long-term success speak to their brilliance as works of art, but also the passionate enthusiasm of those who experienced it. Success is measured in charts and graphs, but impact is seen in art. I'm Kiefer, and this is Select and Start. Welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and today I'm joined by a great guest and an even better friend. You may know him as Ham Castle on Twitter. Please welcome Jared. Jared, how are you doing today? No, I'm doing really well. Thank you, Kiefer. Really nice to uh, to talk to you for the first time. I've been listening to the pod, and it's uh, an honor to jump on. Yeah, it's the first time you and I have actually spoken over voice. Jared and I are in the same group chat that other guests on the show, Man- Manu. Thomas, who talked about a link to the past with us, and a couple of future guests who are actually in that same group chat. You, you can see how easily it is to get guests on the show. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm super stoked to actually talk to you about this amazing game today. Before we start, I have a bunch of questions I have to ask you about video games before we get into video games. I do have to say something. This is a video game podcast first and foremost, but it feels like uh, we live in a different world since I recorded my last episode. So I feel compelled to address some recent events. Firstly, uh, fuck the Supreme Court. Believe it at that. Uh, Far-right nationalist and former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, known for his campaign to increase Japan's declining birth rate, put his money where his mouth was by having his back blown out last weekend. Uh, um, (laughs) Ordinarily, I wouldn't bring up the death of a former world leader at the beginning of a video game podcast, but I thought it was relevant because somehow... Multiple news outlets have circulated images of Metal Gear series creator uh, and director Hideo Kojima wearing a Soviet Ushanka while standing next to an image of Che Guevara, uh, claiming that to be a picture of the assassin. Kojima, of course, did not assassinate Shinzo Abe like every other terminally online leftist. He's not violent. He just wants to post about movies all day. Yeah. Any uh, any thoughts on the death of Shinzo Abe? Oh my god! I, I mean, the mirroring with that and the uh, death of the uh, Yu-Gi-Oh mangaka, like that, that kind of came right before that, was really impressive. Just the timing of that couldn't have been any better, as like a footnote in one another's lives. The memes and the reaction to that was maybe the most fun I've had on Twitter in a long time. So thank you, everyone. The the uh, Scalia death was maybe the most fun I've ever had. That's going to be tough to ever beat. Uh, but the Abe Abe is close. So well done to everyone posting online. Yeah, I think it's Trump getting COVID, uh, <laughs> death of Scalia, Shinzo Abe back blown out. I think that's that's a scale of thing. Very unfortunate way to start the day with the the, the death of like you said, uh, Kazuki Takahashi, the creator of Yu Gi Oh. But it, it, it the day got better. What can what can I say? <laughs> the real killer, of course, was the person who just received a unconditional release last month, uh, John Hinckley Jr. <laughs> so welcome back, John. You know his music appeared on my Spotify Weekly last week? I, I saw that. That is shocking. How do you get to that? Like, what do you do to trigger the algorithm in that manner? I listen to a lot of folk music, like Neutral Milk Hotel, stuff like that. So maybe it's just like, oh, you like lo-fi Daniel Johnston style music? Do you want to listen to the guy who shot Ronald Reagan? And it's like, it was kind of weird because I thought like, this is a pretty good song. Who wrote this? And then I open up my <laughs> my phone and it's saying, oh, it's John Hinckley. <laughs> I didn't know he was on Spotify. I didn't know. 
There's worse music. What I imagine is like in the work environment, because I'm back in the office two days a week, but I have, you know, just my shuffle on and it's playing those songs and somebody walks by and, you know, people often comment on what I'm listening to. Oh, I like this band, whatever. And it's a nice icebreaker. But now what do you do when it's John Hinckley and you have to broach that subject? Like, oh, that's that's who I'm listening to. Like, there's no way out of that conversation in a professional context. Yeah, I think that's your last day at work, no matter what you do. That's uh, I put in my two weeks already. Let's play. Uh, let's play the John Hinckley hits. <laughs> All right, let's get back on topic a little bit. Let's talk about video games. Um, what do you think John Hinckley would play? No. <laughs> uh, no. Let's talk about you, Jared, now. Uh, like I ask all my guests at the top of the show, what do you do and what do you like? Sure. Uh, so I work in tourism, so it's a wonderful industry to be in. Uh, you know, it, we had a, a rough two years, but I would say most of the time when there's not a global pandemic, tourism mm-hmm. is an absolutely wonderful industry uh, to be in. So I help advertise the wonderful city of Pittsburgh. Uh, so make sure you come and visit our awesome city if you never have. Uh, and that's kind of my day job. Uh, and then I definitely put on a different hat as soon as I leave and I go into the uh, gamersphere and the Twitterverse and everywhere else and participate there. For in my leisure time and for the rest of my evening. You know, I like playing online with friends during the pandemic. I think Sea of Thieves helped me survive the pandemic, just playing with three or four people at a time and getting huge groups together, going on massive journeys and kind of escaping that way. Uh, and now I'm playing a little bit of everything. I mean, Elden Ring has sucked me in very bad, uh, yeah. as it happened to a lot of us, as we've seen you know, across the internet, how much that uh, game gets its flaws into you. Yeah, it's going to be kind of what's next. We're in the summer lull here of games, and I'm still finishing up Elden Ring, so I have to get that off my plate, and then it'll be on to the next thing. No, hell yeah. Uh, I just recently beat Elden Ring myself. I love it to to death. It might be cracking that top 10 never played list. <laughs> and see if the, I mean, you just threw me back to like two years ago when I fell way back into the video game hole in 2020 in a way that I hadn't done in years. But for me, I kind of focused weirdly on single player games. Maybe it's just because like I play online games with my friends and and I mainly play shooting games like uh, Overwatch and uh, Apex. And I talked about this with, uh, I think, Maddie mm-hmm. on the Mass Effect 2 episode that the way that I do uh, games with my friends, though, is that we're usually in person, uh, which was not as um, you can't do that as easily with the circumstances of two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I just sort of went back into single player games and played a bunch of stuff like The Last of Us 2 and the Final Fantasy VII remake. I I was buying new games for the first time in a while. I'm usually the kind of person that waits until shit's on sale. But <laughs> no, I, I actually started to play the games of the year and be a part of that conversation, which I guess snowballs our way into this conversation today. I did play Among Us, though, because that was a more friend-based cooperative thing instead of, or I guess anti-cooperative. Um, <laughs> but no, Among Us was a great time. I played with a lot of uh, people in the various group chats that you and I are in. That, that phenomenon Jesus feels like it was years ago, but it feels distant now. Absolutely. I mean, if I can share my story real quick, that, the yeah. Among Us was a game that right at the start of the pandemic that we all kind of gelled around. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, None of us were on Discord. We didn't really have a community. And we just started with a few of us. We started playing Among Us every night. And then, I mean, we were like, inviting people in from different DMs. We were just meeting people we liked that we were playing multiple games with and inviting them into the Discord. And now we have like made this group that I hang out with as much as my you know friends that I have had my entire life. We are playing D&D campaigns together. We get together for things. We are in each other's weddings. And it's mm-hmm. really turned into this uh, community that has been super, super healthy. And I, I'm really big into not, not only gaming and playing games itself, but on the positive effects of gaming and how much it can help build community and all of that. And I, I feel like, you know, 
the the pandemic did a lot for that argument and being able to see like, hey, video games are a source of good. They can be a place where a community can uh, be positive and coalesce around a thing and raise everyone up. No, for sure. I 100% agree. Animal Crossing New Horizons came out at the mm. perfect time. It almost feels manufactured. Uh, stay woke. And <laughs> <laughs> those two games I played a bunch of, but the, the shooter games and just matches where you are randomized and playing in groups of with strangers, I just could not do that anymore. I could not mm-hmm. let my soul source of social interaction just be with people who have headsets while playing playstation 4 it is horrifying (laughs) so yeah uh, what other multiplayer games do you uh play besides you know the ones we just talked about sure no i'm i'm a big overwatch fan as well that we played that a lot during the pandemic uh Mm -hmm. you know i'm mostly a support character uh so i I love playing that i love tanking and all of that that's me with pretty much any game i always like to run support i'm a big league of legends fan uh i've been playing that i mean probably for 10 years not anywhere near professionally but just a great game to play for an hour and and blow off steam and i know like how negative and things that community uh gets paid as being and, and it's there but you know I, that's another thing that I've done socially and is a great way to get everyone together and to rally around a goal and like pull off some amazing victories that you'll talk about like you had just done this amazing thing and it exists for five of you, right? Unless you recorded it, you really can't recreate it and the legends kind of grow uh, from there like like a fishing story. Even some really casual stuff, like we would just put on Fall Guys and we would play Fall Guys for hours. It's so simple. As long as you have a controller that plugs in, like everybody can kind of get involved. If you play teams, like you can pull a lot of people into finals as well. And we just had a blast uh, with that. As people are like going back out and doing things, I I think we're all kind of finding what is that new game? What is that new thing we're going to gel around? I don't Mm -hmm. know if, if, if we exactly have it yet, but I'm sure our group will be on to the next thing. But yeah, I'm I'm now in single player. Like I, I've just been playing Elden Ring. I've been playing uh, Stranger of Paradise and, and things like that on my PS5. So not a ton yeah. of multiplayer right now. Yeah, there's not a big killer app right now in the mm-hmm. in terms of like new uh, multiplayer games. Have you messed with Overwatch Two at all? No, I haven't touched it. I can tell you exactly when I fell off of Overwatch, and it was about a week after they introduced Roll Queue, mm. which kind of killed me wanting to play competitive for a while. And I understand why they did it. I think they sort of developed themselves and updated themselves into a wall where too many people were just, you know, wanting to go for the, 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 that sweet, juicy uh, attack class. But I was a support main anyway, so I, I, I was like, all right, sure, whatever. But something about it just like made the dynamic nature of like each match feel like it disappeared. And I don't know. I, I, I just I missed I just missed the idea of not having to restrict myself to one mm-hmm. place. No, I, I think that you, especially things like League of Legends and stuff, when you have 100 champions and then sometimes mm-hmm. you get to that point where there are the like 10 total champions that everyone picks and it, it, it makes it too samey. And anytime League gets like that, I, I kind of distance myself from it. Uh, let's sort of move on to the other questions that I have for you. Uh, what got you into gaming in the first place? What kind of games in general did you enjoy playing and what was your relationship with like uh, gaming throughout your life? Sure. No, I, I mean, I think I'm lucky that I have a very specific like gaming origin story that I can still like kind of pick out and remember uh, today. Oh, nice. uh, so, you know, I was about four years old. Um, you know, my brother was born. Uh, you know, I was home a lot. My mom was, you know, like working mom and all of that. And when we would be home and, and stuff during the summer, you know, my brother would be napping. And I remember my mom would fire up the Nintendo, you know, original NES. I'm not mm-hmm. going to call it the NES. That's not that's <laughs> illegal. Sorry. 
and we would turn on Bubble Bobble. That was like our go-to. So we would just play that on two-player, uh, and that is where I learned video games. If you would sleep for two hours, we would just play that for a super long time. And I feel like it really trained me early because it's, it's not an easy game at all. Like there's a password system so you can jump back. And I remember having a big piece of paper. We would write all the passwords down so we could like slowly progress our way through that game. But we had a blast with it, collecting all the powers, how interesting and visual that was. The really repetitive uh, theme song that would just, you know, that's a like 30 second loop that goes over and over. But I can still listen to that today and, and never get tired of it. You know, that was my that was my very formative experience uh, with video games. You know, I think as soon as we got to the 16 bit era, my parents tapped out. They were about done with gaming. And then I was pretty much on a solo journey uh, or in a duo once my brother was old enough going through. So I was a big uh, Sega Genesis person. Uh, we had a Super Nintendo as well, but I always loved the Genesis. We had Sega Channel growing up. I mm. distinctly remember when we got that because it was the massive blizzard of 1994. And we had the Sega Channel installed uh, roughly a week and a half before that blizzard hit. Uh, so school was canceled for like two entire weeks. Uh, and we had the Sega Channel and uh, we were ready to go. I'm playing Mean Bean Machine and a hundred other games uh, that I was just, you know, in hog heaven as a child, ready to go and, and jump into those uh, titles. I also re remember when that was being installed. I guess my dad was the first person that had ever ordered the Sega channel, like from the company. So the guy just showed up and had no idea how to install this thing. Like he was just standing there like clueless. And my dad worked in IT, you know, he was pretty knowledgeable with technology and things like that. And he just stood there with the guy and they figured out how to install it. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, that, that's definitely a story that stands out to me uh, that, that I'll always remember is uh, my introduction to Sega Channel and that Blizzard uh, being like, yeah, I'll just play games for you know, two weeks straight and hooked me for life. Nice. So you've, you're, you're kind of like a lifelong gamer since uh, the NES era. Did you ever fall off of gaming or sort of have faces with it at all? Sure. When I got to college, I really fell off of gaming hard. You know, mm -hmm. I really wasn't playing too much of anything. I, I got really into Halo 2 and we would play that as a dorm. Uh, but at that time, you know, like I moved into college, my brother and I shared a room. So like, I didn't have any consoles when I moved in. I didn't, I had like a, a basic, uh, desktop that wasn't really a, a gamer desktop at all. Uh, so I had the Diablo two war chest. If you mm -hmm. remember that, uh, or the battle chest, I believe it was called. So we had that and we played that a good deal. Uh, and, and a lot of halo two, but other than that, I really wasn't gaming too much. And then something around the PS4 era is when I really jumped back into gaming. I'd like started my professional career. I kind of fell mm -hmm. back in love uh, with gaming uh, again. And my girlfriend at the time was going back to grad school. So it freed up a lot of my time to kind of get back into those hobbies. And yeah, now I feel like I am back to my gaming roots. Nice. Do you know, remember like what games you got when you like got back into it? No, I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to rack my brain for the, for the, for what were the PS4 launch titles that I would have really been into. I distinctly remember uh, streaming Knack uh, for the first time using the, <laughs> the built-in, not say, okay, everyone, yeah, don't say, don't take this out of context and say Knack was my formative, uh, get back into gaming moment. Knack was my formative, get back into gaming moment. Knack was my formative, get back into gaming moment.
But I distinctly remember the streaming uh, mm -hmm. from that and uh, how fun that was to do that in one press of a button and have that hooked up. And I had a bunch of my friends watching me and commenting as I was playing. And I got a kick out of doing that. So, you know, I, I think it was a, a lot of like the technology that came about with that, like being able to share screenshots and to post and to and to stream right from there that made me get back into gaming and be like, okay, this is really a fun space that I can not only play stuff in, but communicate with others and be creative in. You talked about what you've been playing lately. What are some games that you are looking forward to that are coming up? You talked about how we're kind of in the summer drought right now, but is there anything in the future uh, now that you have a PlayStation 5 that you are looking toward? <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think about all the new releases and what I'm super excited for. I, I don't know. I have I have such a large backlog of things that I'm playing. Uh, you know, usually when the end of the year kind of game of the year list comes out, I always make it a point to you know see what's on, what I can pick up for cheap, uh, what's uh, going to be on Xbox that I can go and, and play and, and try to get through as many of those uh, as possible. So I feel like I'm not as plugged into the what's coming out uh, world that I used to be, but you know, I'm still getting excited for uh, you know some random things here and there. I will say that it seems like at this point, like I don't know if it's the simulation breaking uh, or what it is, but there are sometimes games that seem to be made for an audience of just me. Uh, mm -hmm. That one upcoming would be the uh, new Lollipop Chainsaw which I will joke around about. And it's just like a running thing that I will go and use as like a go-to gag uh, and now somehow exists. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I willed this into existence. I don't know if there's a pocket of Lollipop Chainsaw fans out there. Uh, if there, if you are, add me to the Discord. You know, I'd love to be a part of that. But yeah, yeah you know, I don't know. I don't know. How about you? What, what's coming up soon that, that I should be excited about? Uh, well, let me think. Uh, I listen to a lot of video game podcasts to sort of keep myself up to date on things and have my ear to the ground. I try and see what the what the flavors of the month are and what's coming out that people are excited for. And then I make a note and that's like, oh, that sounds good. And then I never play them because, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm, I'm trapped in backlog hell. Elden Ring and Pokemon Legends Arceus uh, are kind of a rarity for me because I do rarely play new games. 2020, I had the time to. 2021, I got consumed by work. I, I, I fell off of new releases and then Elden Ring, of course, I play that and that's 125 hours. So in terms of things that I'm looking forward to, people in general are looking forward to God of War Ragnarok. I know uh, that is a game that's, I think, coming out in the winter. I know a lot of people are hyped about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, Shredder's Revenge right now. I need to jump on that. That looks super fun. I played that constantly growing up. The original TMNT 2, uh, the arcade yeah. game, that was such a formative game for me and that and like Streets of Rage 2 had to be games I beat a hundred times. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge beat em up guy. I talked about this with Thomas on his uh, Mental Health Break podcast. He was super excited about uh, Shredder's Revenge, and I said I was going to get to it. Right now, I'm currently playing Hollow Knight, and mm. uh, obviously that's like a 40 hour game. So looking forward to beating that. Uh, I'm playing through Final Fantasy Tactics as well in preparation for a future guest. Uh, spoiler alert, guys. That's that life consuming, but I love to set aside. 45 minutes or however long it takes to beat a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game. Absolutely. I like live for those experiences. And you know, I have no complaints with Elden Ring. I could you know, talk mm -hmm. about all day the things and the systems and everything I enjoy about that. And I think there's a ton of replayability. Uh, but also sometimes, you know, I work, I have kids, you know, I have a mm -hmm. life and a family. Sometimes it's really nice to just end your day by playing something for an hour and just completing it. Like start, middle, end, and you have wrapped it up and you have completed that. That's the reason I like roguelikes a lot. Like, cool, I'll yeah. just do a run of Slay the Spire and see how far I get. 
or something like that. So that's a reason roguelikes have always had uh, my attention because I think they're they can be brutally hard and they can be cheap yeah. and they can, but they're also so much fun. And the reward for that and the time investment being minimal means it, it just can be a huge payoff when you have that run, that miraculous run of items and, and plays mm-hmm. that you can get to the end. Yeah, no, I get I get consumed by roguelikes and roguelites. I played Dead Cells a ton when that came out and I became consumed by it. And then Risk of Rain was a big one I played in college. And then Risk of Rain 2, when that came out, got consumed mm-hmm. by that. Hades became the big one when that dropped in 2020. That easily my favorite game of the ones I played that year. So many blockbuster games that I actually played that year. Hades, like head and shoulders above that. Love the shit out of that game. I could pick it up right now and play it for an hour. And it would still be the time of my life. I never got sick of that game. I had to stop. I had to stop myself from making that the only game I played because I knew I had to make add variety to my life. No, I mean, Hades is that danger. I mean, it is a game yeah. I will never uninstall. It will stay on my PC forever. And like, I like smashed a keyboard with it, not out of <laughs> anger, just from like slamming the space bar and things like that. I just really like how the keyboard feels uh, when you're yeah. playing Hades and on a good run. And uh, I like using the mouse uh, a little bit more than a controller for my attacks for that. Uh, so yeah, I, I have uh, completely destroyed a, a keyboard playing that game, and just have a blast with all of the all of the runs and how much I can get into it, and the soundtrack and everything. I can just listen to those tracks on repeat. Uh, you know, I, there were months I was just listening to that soundtrack over and over and over, and I don't get tired of those songs. That's one of those like close to perfect games. Just clicks into place, perfect. I get it. I love it. I haven't stopped. Before we get into the the main event. Uh, I did want to ask, uh, what other video games would you consider to be very important to you uh, in your heart? Sure. Uh, no, that's a really good question. You know, I think g- games that mean a lot to me would definitely be Nier Automata, I think, is the one that has stuck with me from the last like five, 10 years. I think the themes of that, the way that resonated with me, the personal things that I was going through at the time that were mirroring, I think a lot that was happening in that game, a lot of what Yoko Taro had to say about world events, about hopelessness, about despair, about so many very, very complicated issues. And the way he was able to make you make those choices and play through the same events again and again, expecting a different result, was just masterful. That game, I think, just changed me for the better in a lot of ways. Uh, it was just something that completely engrossed me, uh, and I, I couldn't get enough. I could not play through and get each ending fast enough to, to roll through that. You know, other things of that generation, and it was right around that release date, I believe, was Metal Gear Solid Five. just a game that completely sucked me in, that I, you know, made me realize how much I loved the, the Metal Gear franchise and, mm-hmm. and, and those themes and what it was commenting on, and it kind of the the genius of Kojima. I, I think like after four and, and and kind of that gap in between, you know, maybe I wasn't as high on that series as I remember being when when one came out. When I was in college, is that's when Snake Eater came out. So I didn't really get the full Snake Eater experience when that was going on. So I, I, I hadn't thought about Metal Gear in a long time. And I think five really reawoken that that that, that passion in me for, for what Kojima was up to and, and made me just love everything he was going for. And I think I'd now at that point had seen enough movies it's seen enough to know what his references were uh and mm-hmm. been through enough to be like okay th- this is what he is going for and that's why i didn't appreciate this now and then when i revisited all of those titles it quickly made mgs5 one of my favorite games of all time i, I know it's cliche but i think you know, final fantasy 7 for for mm-hmm. sure is, is a formative game experience you know i would say after earthbound final fantasy 7 was probably one of the first big jrpgs that i ever played mm-hmm. uh and it completely engrossed me it changed what I liked and looked for in video games, it kind of set me down the JRPG track 
for the rest of my life. And I, that's still where I am. I still want to play Yakuza like a dragon over the, you know, regular beat-em-up style Yakuza games, you know, which right. are great. And have, but I, I much rather have those RPG systems and things like that. They become a comfort for me. But anytime, you know, I, I scratch that layer and look back, you know, I had Earthbound and I had uh, Final Fantasy VI, you know, Final Fantasy III here and all of that. But but seven is what kind of really changed me and made me want to explore that JRPG space, you know, permanently. Yeah. And Earthbound, similarly to, you know, Final Fantasy has a different name or like different numbered entries. We'll get to that shortly, but I did want to sort of talk about the other uh, meaningful games that you mentioned. Metal Gear Solid Five was actually my first Metal Gear game that I ever played, which is insane. <laughs> Having now gone back and played all of the entries, that 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 V was the first one. Mm-hmm. It hooked me instantly. There was, you know, even though I had absolutely no fucking idea what was happening, it was <laughs> incredible, incredible to play. I think uh, the way that it is so different from the series is kind of also the allure of it. Which is why I'm really looking forward to Manu's coverage of everything because he is becoming more and more certain that this may be his favorite game in the uh, the series. And considering how much of a how much of a savant he is about the Metal Gear franchise, that's 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 a lofty statement. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But uh, Near is also something that I'm looking forward to playing. Mm-hmm. It's I've had it downloaded for years uh, on my uh, I, I had it on my PlayStation Four and then I transferred my data to my Five and now it's downloaded on the Five. I mean, I'm so excited for you to take that journey. There's, it's, it's one of those things like sometimes like I wish I could sit and watch people experience some games for the first time, especially when, when you know that person pretty well and you know something is going to hit for them because of the yeah. themes or because of the gameplay or like the gameplay loop, loop or the feedback is really going to work. You know, that makes me super excited to share games. So I really hope you you know, enjoy what uh, Yoko Taro was going for and kind of the context with that. A lot of times the gameplay doesn't click for people. So don't let that turn you off in the in the first couple hours if it doesn't. And, you know, stick around for the story. And, you know, I, I think everything comes together just magnificently. I'm a pretty stubborn asshole when it comes to games in terms of like, I actually insist on seeing it through uh, because I need to see the appeal. And sometimes it pays off. Sometimes it doesn't. I think I th- I'm pretty confident that I will enjoy Automata when I do get to it because the people I a lot of people that I personally know just talk it up so much and I'm really looking forward to playing it when I finally do. I can't wait for it. Which brings me back to Final Fantasy VII. I played VII for the first time in the early months of the pandemic on the the original one uh, on the Switch, which has the quality of life updates that make a lot of the stuff like level grinding a lot easier. <laughs> and it was a super super incredible experience even what was it 23 years since its original release uh and then i had to jump right into remake and i enjoyed remake quite a bit but i know a lot of people have just varying schools of thought on the subject did you play remake and if so what did you think of it just tying back into what i was talking about with final fantasy 7 before uh, a big reason it's formative for me is because it's how i I kind of met one of my best friends from high school was through that game uh because we both owned it and he was like stuck on something and he invited me over to his house and uh, we just had an absolute blast uh, playing through it. And I helped him through the part in probably like 10 minutes. And then we you know, turned that into a, a super close friendship uh, you know, throughout all of high school and everything from there. So you know, that was like an important game to me. You know, we would go over and he would put on uh, Master of Puppets because he was a big metalhead. We would listen to metal and play, play Final Fantasy VII. It was this very, very formative experience. Like I could still like see the room and smell the room that we were in as we were playing that. <laughs> kind of like passing the controller back and forth, one save file type of thing. And like, so yeah. that's where I beat Final Fantasy VII. I owned it and I beat the version like at his house, like way before I ever beat my version of it. So jumping on to Remake, uh, you know, I came in because I had that experience and because like I was 
so had this tune to like this is one of my best games of all time like this is a top three game for me like nothing is going to like i was ready to hate that mm-hmm. uh, and i jumped in and i started playing it and like i mean i think it's a miracle i, yeah. I can't believe how good remake is it hits every note every beat is done and it's done with care uh you are you are just ushered through areas like everything is like alive and breathing and the best way I can describe it is that remake looks like Final Fantasy VII looked in my head in in 1994, right? Right. When I was going through the strategy guide and I was like, you know, dreaming and like usually had it under my pillow at night, like I was dreaming in that remake world that now exists, and now I'm playing through a world that existed in my head. So mm. that's why I call it a miracle. I, I can't believe that someone would have that same vision to be like, I, we're going to take that. We're going to make this world fully realized. We understand the polygons were limited uh, mm. and, and we're going to do that. And we're not going to make it a, a flat retelling of the story either. It's not going to be uh, beat for beat. So the fact that they're able to go and sorry, if it's spoiler territory, you could just uh, fast yeah, forward. Spoiler alert for Final Fantasy VII Remake. Yes. Uh, so the fact that they're able to go through and uh, comment on remake culture in general mm-hmm. throughout the entire, it is a touchstone of the entire game is fascinating to me. I would love if more things in this culture of heavy remakes, reboots, revamps of everything that we've ever played and seen, you know, more things would comment on that. What does it mean when you remake something? What is a rebuild as opposed to a reboot or something like that? And what does that do to these characters? What does that do to the worlds that they inhabit, right? Does it delete those original worlds? Are those original worlds fighting back in your subconscious in some way? And we see that a lot when, when reboots fail and things like that. It's your subconscious, your childhood memory of this fights back in a way that it invalidates what the thing is. It never gets out of the gate because it doesn't hook you in. It You don't get buy-in from your audience when they're participating in that, no matter how you crafted it. I think that Remake was very smart and able to go in and look at what makes something a remake and what are the implications of remake culture and making that, you know, a central villain, a central you know, foe uh, of of that game itself. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm 100% with you there. I feel the exact same way about the thematic through line of the game and the big swings that it took on a storytelling level. A lot of people uh, give Nomura shit and a lot of the time it's warranted. Do not get me wrong. Um, but in this instance, I do feel like it is. I, th- I do think he kind of nailed it. There's definitely some like moment to moment gameplay stuff that isn't 100% perfect, but visually it's brilliant. Uh, I do love the gameplay in general. The world is just masterful. Uh, it really justifies the fact that it is basically the tutorial section of the Final Fantasy original seven. Like I literally like because I was planning on playing Remake because it was already out when I started playing the original on Switch and I made a mm-hmm. mental note of like, when will, when do I get out of Midgar in this original copy? I opened it up almost six hours exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think I spent a total of 36 hours playing the original. Incidentally, I saw that like my playtime was almost exactly the amount of time I spent playing Final Fantasy VII. So it's like 35 hour game, uh, just set in like the first five or so hours of Final Fantasy VII original it's legitimately great. The idea is about nostalgia and the violence of it that is realized in that story. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. The idea of this presented itself as like, we're going back. Uh, we know what you people want. And then giving them something different, it 
legitimately good. The fact that they did that in a blockbuster space, like they mm-hmm. did for other shit, like uh, the last Jedi or um, God, what's another, I had another anti-nostalgia example, twin peaks, the return. Yes. Uh, and the rebuilds of Ev- Evangelion. They, they, yes. they, they've all been doing this. And it's like, they, there's like a memo of like good storytelling that's going out in terms of how we interact with these trends. And I'm all over it. I'm all over it. Whatever mm-hmm. form it is, you can give that back to me and like whatever shell you want to wrap around that, I will take note of that narrative every time and give it five stars. Yeah, I'm 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 super glad that we're on the same page about it. Even the new Chip and Dale, it was very much taking a look at that. It, it was examining that. You know, it was much more kid friendly and things like that. But it was you know it was just riffing on on Roger Rabbit and what if what if Toontown continued and what would that be like <laughs> and you know commenting on all the trends and CGI and all of that. Like it was it, it was really wistful and, and smart about a lot of the decisions it made. Yeah, it's just the idea of like what if these you know these fictional people what if. <laughs> What are you doing to them by forcing them to stay in the same place their entire lives? And the fact that Final Fantasy VII Remake touches on that and uh, the Evangelion movies touch on that, like treating these fictional characters like their their feelings matter and that they should have a say in their their own narrative. And then Chip and Dale also being like, yeah, I agree with those two. <laughs> those two masterpieces. Not a, not a Venn diagram I would ever imagine intersecting, but here we are. We talk, we're talking about meaningful video game experiences. We're talking about cartoons. Uh, we're talking about nostalgia. Let's go into today's video game, Earthbound. So Earthbound was developed by Ape Inc. and HAL Laboratory and published by Nintendo for the Super Nintendo. Uh, the game was directed by Shigesato Itoi, uh, with HAL's president at the time, Satoru Iwata, serving as producer and programmer. The music was composed by Kichi Suzuki and Chip Tanaka. And I did also want to give an honorable mention to the game's translator and I believe the lead localizer, uh, Marcus Lindblom, who had to take on the insurmountable task of taking something Uh, with a very strange sense of humor and a lot of adaptations of, you know, Western uh, intellectual properties and ideas and music uh, with an Eastern, you know, Japanese sensibility, like having to sort of filter that and translate it for an American audience. That is is a huge task. Are you familiar with the anime Fooly Cooly? Oh, yes, absolutely. I was introduced to that in college. Yeah, I, I do think that it is an interesting companion with Earthbound in general, but the localization for that was a very, you know, similar, like, big task that the people who were wanting to air it on Adult Swim, they, they took very seriously. So they had to take a bunch of, you know, Japanese references that they, we wouldn't quite understand. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I think one example is, like, they had to take a, a soda that is discontinued in Japan, and then they just called it Crystal Pepsi in America, uh, taking, uh, you know, Japanese mi- musicians and throwing in, like, American musicians and also like Richard Cheese, who's a, a, a ballroom <laughs> dance parody artist, stuff like that. And then actually making a legitimately good localization overall with a strong dubbing team. Earthbound story is very similar to that, where they, number one, they have to worry about things like, oh, hold on, this might be copyrighted in America, like the Blues Brothers. Let's change these guys' costume, but also like giving context to uh, ideas that we wouldn't understand philosophically, like, uh, the, the image of the, the building with the iron in Fully Cooly. Yeah, I'm glad that you had the same frame of reference here so we can <laughs> go off of that. 
Absolutely. No, it's, it's a masterful job. I, I mean, we could, the entire podcast, we could talk about the localization easily. You know, I, I struggle to make sure to be really like, okay, you have to talk about something that isn't that because there, there's just so <laughs> much. I mean, Frank Cifaldi filled up a 600 page book, I believe, about like his notes on the, on, on that translation and, and uh, doing all of that history. So that information is out there, uh, but it, it will never stop fascinating me. As an adult, when I mm-hmm. went back and revisited this game, you know, that's what really caught my attention was how did they go and take all of this humor and preserve it uh, and make it still work? There's so much in here. This is a game that is packed with text. So, you know, how did they go and keep that running the for the entire, what, you know, 40, 60 hours that, that you could play through Earthbound? Like you said, it is a pretty text-heavy game, and I think the most impressive part about the localization is the standard at the time uh, versus now. Uh, It took games months or even years to come over from one territory to another, and there wasn't dedicated localization teams or companies dedicated to localization like there are now. And a lot of games that did come over from Japan especially uh, had this... uh, broken English sense to a lot of the stuff or stuff was mm-hmm. poorly translated. Famously, Castlevania 2, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link are just like two immediate ones that come to my mind. And those are those are big name Nintendo games. Mm-hmm. And the amount of care that goes into it that this, you know, individual Marcus Lindblom went above like, I'm just going to translate this literally, but also I want this game to make sense for its for the for a new audience and having that pay off over several decades, it, it's great stuff. Absolutely. I, I mean, I can't say enough about the, the translation efforts. And what I think, I mean, you you read the development history of this and how much I feel like it struggled at every single point to get over the goal line. It's just like Etoy and everyone involved had to just keep fighting and fighting and fighting for this game. Uh, you know, and it would just get, get delayed or moved back and then it wouldn't fit on a cart. But they wouldn't stop. Like they didn't ever stop and be like, well, we'll just put the music on that we have, you know, and and we're going to cut out all of these tracks. They're like, no, we're going to do exactly what we want with this game. We're going to fill it with everything. It's going Mm -hmm. to say exactly what we wanted to say uh, at the pace we want to say it. That's largely the game that we got. Like they just fought enough. uh, And and I'm glad that the translation then like brought that over the goal line. I don't know if this would be as fondly remembered if if that translation didn't exist. It could still be an all time game in Japan. But, you know, would it have had any impact in here if that translation didn't have the same amount of effort and care put in line by line? to make sure that this was really engaging to to an audience. You know, I was nine, 10 years old when I played this. So it had to be something that like gripped me mm-hmm. and I thought was funny and, and, and kept me playing. There were a lot of things like this that, that I bounced off of uh, relatively early. But this, I mean, hooked me from minute one and I, I, I couldn't put it down. Yeah, it's a very special game with such a, such a unique visual aesthetic. Uh, to talk about the game itself now, It is a turn-based RPG with some unique mechanics that we'll get into shortly. Visually, it's very reminiscent of like a 16-bit Peanuts comic strip. Very, very American. Uh, Like we we talked about how this is a Nintendo game through and through from Japan, but definitely has a lot of connections to America and Americana. Set in the year 1990X in the fictional (laughs) version of America called Eagle Land. Uh, you play as a young boy named Ness who meets a beetle named Buzz Buzz after a meteor crashes near your home. He tells you he traveled back in time 10 years to warn you that the cosmic evil named Gigas, or Gigas, depending on who you ask, is using his alien powers to consume animals and creatures and people and weird little abstract creatures that just exist in this world with hate and make them violent 
things that'll just attack everybody around you. Buzz Buzz tells Ness to use the soundstone to collect the melodies from eight sanctuaries to defeat Gygus. I feel like I sound like Joe Biden right now, just like <laughs> Buzz Buzz told me that Gigas was a bad dude. <laughs> My neighbor Porky was a coward. <laughs> My buddy Pooh was a magic man. You know how Joe Biden sounds. <laughs> I don't. Have, I don't have a bite. I can't. B- back in Monday, we we we'd see the Runaway Five perform at Foreside. Just <laughs> Joe Biden. Just <laughs> like I said, I'm not an impressions guy. <laughs> no, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I'm just, just let, let the words do the, do the part here. Exactly. <laughs> Kamala Harris on the news going, we must defeat Gigas because Gigas must be defeated. <laughs> Her taking the corrupt cops, cop side as uh, they attack children uh, in the police precinct. <laughs> ah, so Jesus. During his, dark. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> right on target. Right on target. <laughs> <laughs> During his journey, Ness befriends a psychic named Paula, a genius named Jeff, and a prince named Pooh, who join him on the fight to defeat Gigas. That's a, that's the general outline of Earthbound. Very, very crazy and abstract game right off the bat. There's a guy named Pooh who's hanging out with you. The evil that you fight doesn't even have like a physical form. It's a very Stephen King, Eldritch. I guess that's the best way of putting like the game in general. It's like a Stephen King story in major key. Mm-hmm. Like pretty upbeat, but this general idea is like a bunch of kids fighting and unknowable representation of evil and them representing like pure good and pure light. I think that, I think that's the vibe. Wouldn't would, would you agree? No, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I, I love it. I love that it from the beginning subverts a lot of tropes that I think had crept into RPGs. You know, mm-hmm. when you look at kind of the history and what everything grew out of, you know, RPGs were originally developed on like ARPANET and things like that. And they were all very steeped in Dungeons and Dragons and, and your Ultimas, your your things like that. So they were very sword and shield and sorcerer based and all of that. So from the beginning, I love that you're just like a kid. Like you're just a kid mm-hmm. and your, your mom's telling you to get the door. She's yelling at you to get changed. She's giving you food before you leave out on your journey. And you're just like, as a 10-year-old, how could I relate to a game any quicker than like having that like scenario in front of me like okay what do you do if you're woken up at night by this crash and everyone's pounding at the door it's like yeah i would want to go investigate if you told me half a mile from the house a meteorite landed like yeah i'm going there in my pjs like sign me up let's go it's kind of like stand by me it starts from like a very real and relatable place of you know you, you have kids hanging out in a tree house you have your friends you're growing up in a town together you do everything together and then it goes to like immediately the dark place of like you want to see a dead body (laughs) (laughs) and the way it like escalates i don't know this is good this uh, reference is going to kill me but the uh it's riverdale right it starts off as the (laughs) the, uh, adorable like archie like ah the biggest problem i have is girls and things like that and it turns into like resurrecting the dead from other parallel universes uh and, and all of that by the end I mean, until uh, Riverdale like has a crossover with the the actual Predator from the film Predator, it still won't be as crazy <laughs> as actual Archie comics. So in that way, <laughs> I would love to just watch a random episode, like watch a show on Shuffle, because it will make exactly as much sense. I mean, that's a podcast right there. Like we just shuffle the episodes and we'll just comment <laughs> as we watch them and, then, and draw conclusions. We'll make our own themes and arcs for the characters from there. We'll uh, edit the show so the soundtrack's just replaced with like the 16-bit Earthbound music too. Add like a yes. weird, weird little layer to it. Perfect. That means you haven't known the triumphs and defeats, the epic highs and lows of high school football. Yeah, they should do an Earthbound episode of Riverdale. Is I guess what what we're getting at here. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, like it writes itself. Like you need those four to come in and, and defeat defeat an ancient evil. Like who else would you call? 
Not the Stranger <laughs> Things kids. Get them out. We had that. It was called Earthbound. Yeah, why didn't I go for that comparison first? <laughs> like comparing it to kids on bicycles fighting like a fighting an alien evil <laughs> alt dimension. You Stranger stand things. by me, and I went Riverdale, and I don't know what what that's saying about each of us. When when Stranger Things is topical, is like happening right now, and we it didn't even cross our minds. The fact that you went for Riverdale, even though you have an adult, you're an adult with kids, and I'm <laughs> a 25 <a> year old <laughs> going like, yeah, like Stephen King, you know. <laughs> But yeah, no, Stranger Things, Riverdale, Stephen King, whatever your frame of reference is for uh, small town America stories. This this game does really, really well. Like we've talked about, it's kind of a legendary game for a lot of reasons uh, ahead of its time in a lot of ways. But also it is a game that is famously elusive, especially in America. So that is going to segue me into a, a segment that I do all of my episodes, but at the behest of my best friend, Avery, who does the art for the show. He says he suggested for pacing purposes that I put the segment early in the show. So this is No Country for Old Games. This is the part of the show where I talk about video game preservation and rate today's game on a scale of A to ARG. And ARG being an expression of frustration and in no way a suggestion for my listeners to pirate a video game. I'm just upset that this game is so so hard to find. What are you talking about? ARG. Yeah. Um <laughs> You know what to do. You know what to do. You know, you talked about this game being something that you've played as a kid at 10 years mm-hmm. old, but most of its players were not so fortunate to have grown up with this game in real time. I do actually think it does make sense to talk about this in the middle of the episode because a big part of Earthbound's legacy is connected to its availability over the years. Mm-hmm. Earthbound and uh, the series that it's a part of in general, the Mother series, are games frequently brought up in the conversation of video game preservation because this series was, and in many ways remains, difficult for gamers to acquire. We talked about the localization efforts made. A big part of that being that they had to make a game that is technically the second in a series of three games and the only one that came to America work as a standalone story. Uh, Like (laughs) the title text in the American version of the game is like... uh, I can't remember the exact words for it. It's like, do you remember like Gigas something? No, I can't remember. Yeah, but it's just sort of like Gigas attacks Earth or something like that. But in Mother 2, the Japanese version of the game, it's Gigas strikes back. It's a Star Wars reference, but it is also like the villain of the first game is back and he's pissed. Uh, (laughs) They had to localize that to make it not confusing for its for its audience Mm -hmm. but yeah that elusiveness and the fact that we only got one part of a three-part series makes it part of its unique reverence among a group of gamers it's a singular game that makes an impact on most of the people who play it and has a small and devoted fan base who have dedicated themselves to playing the series and talking it up to the people that unfortunately did not play it at the time which is going to sort of bring me back to you you got to play this game in media res (laughs) you got to play it when it was on store shelves uh, I have to ask you, Jared, Earthman wasn't a huge seller. It's dedicated cult following when it emerged until years later. What was your meet cute with this game? What was your life like playing it? This, this game is nothing but transformative to me. It is one mm-hmm. of those things that I, I got this in my hands and I, I didn't know what I had. And then once I started playing it, you know, it became something that made me, I think, the person I am today and has always stuck with me. You know, it's something I think about. It influences the, the things I like to read, the, the things I like to write, like everything. I, I can draw back to Earthbound in some way. So it was Christmas of 1996. 
Uh, wow. When I first uh, ran into this game, you know, I was 10 years old at the time. I, I got this very weird shaped box uh, under the tree and had no idea what I was holding, right? It, earthbound with the giant star man uh, on the front in this, uh, you know, then the huge box with the strategy guide and everything inside. And I remember my dad like looking, like really trying to gauge my reaction to that and seeing like what I thought and, and everything like that. Uh, so I'll come back to what his reaction was about. But I immediately jumped into this game. Like I probably later that day, once family got out of the house, I probably raced upstairs and it, like jammed this uh, cartridge in as fast as I could to get it started. Yeah, it just became one of those things that I look forward to every day. It was like coming home, have that strategy guide in my lap and get through the next section uh, of the game. The strategy guide became almost something I was traveling around with. I remember distinctly in fifth grade, I was bringing it to school. It was in my school backpack every day. When wow. we would have a break or when I would bring it out at art class, I would open that book up and I would start drawing some of the uh, figures that I saw or some of the enemies that were up upcoming. The strategy guide, you can look up some of the stills. They had that really cool Nintendo Power uh, claymation style art uh, that a lot of them were modeled after. So it made them really, really fun to draw a lot of those characters. So I know podcasting is a is, is, is not a visual medium. However, right. I will show you and I can send you a, a picture that this is the only thing I have left of, of that box. I don't have the cartridge anymore. I don't have anything else, but I do have my original Earthbound uh, strategy guide still wow. today. You can see it is heavily taped up. I can describe it for the audience. It has some notes written like on the front. Uh, there are pages falling out. It's heavily water damaged. But this is my original uh, Earthbound uh, strategy guide that I, I grabbed from my mom's a few years ago as she was cleaning stuff out and asked if I wanted it. So, you know, now I have it. It's sitting on my lap as we record this podcast. It's on my, like, after this, it's going to go back nicely on my bookshelf. I think that says a lot for how this game uh, has stuck with me. So mm -hmm. then returning back to my dad, you know, he saw how much I was getting into this game, like just talking about it, like loving the themes, really kind of consuming uh, me as a 10-year-old. And he definitely took note of that. Uh, and he later told me, like, I just bought that because it was in the $5 bin at Kmart. Like there wow. was a giant bin of them sitting there. And there, I know there's other people with this story as well, because I, I found them online talking about it. But it was mm -hmm. just sitting in a bin and they were just trying to get rid of these duds. This game just would not sell at all. You got the dud! <laughs> no one knew what this thing was and it was marketed terribly. Uh, mm -hmm. and they were like, he just put it under there almost as a gag gift. And he was going to be happy if I played it for an hour. And little did he know he had uh, introduced me to my favorite game of all time. That's incredible. That's a great story. I mean, yeah, I've also read similar stories about this game sort of like they couldn't give it away uh, <laughs> it, but ultimately became all consuming for the people that did get, did get to play it. You alluded to it already. The story of Earthbound's marketing is interesting because it is a contributing factor in why it didn't sell. You usually hear about things becoming unsuccessful because the owner of the property or the publisher of the property didn't market it or advertise it very much. But there was a multi-million dollar advertising campaign for this game because it has a lot of American sensibilities to it. It's not yeah. like anything else. We can we can sell this. Nintendo invested a bit of money to make sure that Earthbound was sold to American audiences. The problem was that the campaign that they went for stunk. Uh, literally, because their idea of promoting the game was with the tagline, quote, this game stinks. <laughs> it stinks. I can't believe it's real. Every time I see the ad or any of the copy or anything, I'm like, how? How can you do this? 
it's a horrible, horrible marketing campaign because like the, I guess the defense was like, you know, the nineties, everything's grunge and dirty and mm-hmm. gross poop humor, or MTV, whatever you want to call it. But no, you don't do that for your products when you're trying to sell them. That wasn't the vibe of the game. They had literal scratch and sniff ads in magazines that smelled foul. The um, the magazine pages advertising Earthbound would also have fart clouds on them. Oh, God. Why? And on top of that, the game itself was also like prohibitively expensive. There was a bafflingly bad advertising campaign for it. And on top of that, you're charging $80 retail for something that is typically retailing for about 60. Uh, and that's in, you have to keep in mind too, that's in American USD in 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, that what is $80 in 1995 is close to $150 now factoring in inflation. So I, I would not pay $150 for something that was advertised as the best game of all time today. I can tell you that I would, I would <laughs> wait a little bit until it was in the bargain bin in Kmart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And you know, I, you know, I thought a lot about this as I began my career, I work in marketing and advertising and all right. of that. So like this part of it has always fascinated me and how much of a dud this launch was. And you know, it's like boys with a time machine. What would you do? It's like I would release Earthbound like before they were getting pressured by Sega of America and doing trying to do edgy campaigns to try to match what Sega was doing yeah. and try to position themselves as the adult system. They took the rap for this and they took the brunt of all of this like failure of the Nintendo of America trying to be the hip cool system that we yeah. never needed them to be. It, it just yeah, it buried this game. It buried this game for a hundred million people that should have been playing it. So yeah, and one hundred and fifty dollars. When you think about that, that this better be the best game of all time. Absolutely right. It, it, I mean, I, I remember uh, Super Mario RPG being a hundred dollars. Like was it like? And it, so was like, it really? The, the pricing was was radical at, at that time. You just had no idea based on you know, like the chip size and based on like some of the things that would be in, included and what was first party. Nintendo games were just all over the place. I would Jeez. never pay a hundred dollars for a game now. Yeah, we we just we just saw video games like the standard MSRP raised to seventy dollars, uh, and people were like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" And it's like, apparently, you had to pay a hundred dollars to play Super Mario RPG, so it could be worse. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like games could also stand to be as good as Super Mario RPG, but but I digress. <laughs> yeah, so Earthbound wasn't a popular game outside of Japan. The critics at the time were pretty lukewarm on it, and the marketing probably did more harm than good like i think if you had just like put the game on the shelf sight unseen in the advertising space it probably would have managed to sell maybe twice as much (laughs) but uh, it sells over half a million units in japan successful there One hundred and forty thousand units in north america failure Mm -hmm. basically over the years it becomes like something of a cult hit it develops a small devoted following of people and starnet becomes a hugely popular website of fans of just Earthbound before there's even a Mother 3 and there's a just a widely available version of uh, Mother 1 available. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ness appears in Super Smash Brothers on a Nintendo 64 and in subsequent entries of the game. This generates interest in a game that most of the people who bought hadn't even heard of. I remember my brothers at the time getting Super Smash Brothers, my older brothers, and them not knowing a couple of the characters on them and looking them up because they just had no frame of reference for who this was. And they were people mm-hmm. who were born, they were born in 87 and 88. So they could have seen it if it were a widely popular game. They had a Super Nintendo, but they just completely flew over their heads. They didn't know who Ness was. I just, I, I still remember that. 
I'm always fascinated by that. Like, how did NES get into that original game? When you look at the pantheon of Nintendo characters and recognizable franchises that they had at that time, like for mm -hmm. NES to be in that at all, I, I think tells you something about, especially in Japan, how recognizable he was. Earthbound, like frame of reference in my mind has always come back to Smash Brothers. I um, just remember like there's a surprising number of stages for the franchise considering like how small it is compared to like the big the bigger reps mm -hmm. like at least four stages that i can think of off the top of my head and you know the fact that they got ness in one the first game I, I i read this and i was like oh my god like he's in all five games like he's the only character to appear in all five games that's only been in one game total which is just like wild to think about right yeah i mean i'm sorry if i'm jumping ahead but when you go into like when every time they try to re-release this game or remaster it or whatever that is, or just do a straight emulation of this game onto the store, it, it always is met with like long delays and a lot of questions. People say it's the music and people say it's other things. And it's always like speculation and we never seem to know. It's like the mystery of this game just continues to grow and grow and grow uh, the longer that it never gets revisited. Everything that happens in Earthbound, nothing ever like resets it and never gets put back to zero. There's never like the Earthbound collection. Here's all three games meticulously restored uh, with some like quality of life achievements and improvements. It's just like, ah, yeah, you could do Earthbound on Switch now or on the SNES Classic, and that's it. I think that's there's literally points in like Nintendo's history where they they acknowledge that people want Mother Three, and they're just like, fuck you, <laughs> get away from me. You, you dirty, dirty people. But only only eight people want this game. It's like I think there's a little bit more than eight, man. Like <laughs> there's like a there's a fan English patch just ready to go whenever you can. It, you it's can, ready. It's, you could just apply it. Come on, Reggie, give us Mother Three. How about this instead? If you just put it on the Nintendo Store for twenty dollars, it would be at the top seller of the week just because. Just as like a curiosity, Nintendo can sell water to a fish at this point. We are desperate, desperate people over here mm -hmm. at Nintendo. We will buy anything. Just put Mother 3 out there. See what happens. Just, just throw it up there. Throw it up there for a day and just be like, yeah. okay, if people really want it, you'll grab it in this day. And like, I promise you, Nintendo, I will grab that. Like, I will mm -hmm. get there immediately because I can't wait. I want to go through the actual experience. Like, I played through rebuilds and all of that, but it's like, I would just love more than anything, to play through that original Mother 3 experience and have that realize how it was supposed to be. You know, I had the Nintendo power until it fell apart uh, yeah. that had those screenshots of what Mother 3 was going to look like and, and all of that. And just like, I see the layout of that page in my head so clearly. I remember what every screen looked like. I remember the models that were being used and the wording they were using to describe it and everything. It was just mm. like every month I would look for updates and look and look and look. And then it was by that time I was getting a little older. Like the internet was like you could see the problems that were inherent with this. And, you know, soon we never heard about Earthbound 3 again. It was just never mentioned. And it just became this like thing of lore so to be bookended by a game that doesn't exist on either side is, mm -hmm. is amazing i don't know what other titles have something similar around that the first and third entries to the series are largely inaccessible there was there's stuff kind of similar to that that i can think of uh the yakuza series for example the first game came out in america very weird localization effort because they try and push it as like this is the next gta but it's set in japan they get an all-star cast of people. Mark Hamill to uh, voice Majima, which on paper, brilliant casting, brilliant casting, especially like considering where that character is now. Good stuff. But the, the voice acting itself wasn't especially well directed and it didn't really match the tone of the, the games. Hmm. Kazuma Kiryu-chan, 
the dragon of the Dojima family. But it just it just commercially flopped in North America. It didn't sell well. The, the the localization didn't really capture the vibe of the series. No 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 Yakuza for years. Yakuza <laughs> Zero finally comes out. Renewed interest in the series, and now they've been like slowly releasing them in the original Japanese audio with English subtitles. And now it's highly popular. You just had to you just had to wait for the culture to catch up to. We don't need English voice acting for everything. Right, right. No, that's a really good point. Have you ever played the other Mother games? So I played through the original Mother. You know, I, I really like that. It definitely gives me a Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two vibe in terms mm-hmm. of like, I mean, this was clearly the test run of what they were going to be able to perfect going on. There's a lot of shared assets and story and, and models and everything, uh, but with like very basic artwork, they, they they couldn't get the backgrounds to work and, and things <laughs> like that. So I, I think it was a really good like test run for what mm-hmm. was going on. It, it's nice as for me for a curiosity, but I, I don't think about it too much like nothing in that really sticks in my brain as much and no i've never touched mother 3 i don't i don't know what it is i feel like i want to play it i know it's out there i could download it you know as mm-hmm. we're doing this podcast and i could boot that up but i have i have never ventured into there i feel like i'm waiting for an official release at this point like i feel like i want to play it as it was meant to be played and experience that for the first time from what i do understand it does actually like have similar themes to what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, nostalgia and the the evil inherent in it in a lot of ways. Whenever you do get around to it, I do think that that will be right up your alley because it is going to use a lot of that iconography on and against the player. That's that's getting off the beaten path a little bit. We gotta gotta wrap just, up this segment. Yeah, go ahead. That doubles down on our point, right? Or yeah, like, it does. If, why would you not release it right now? That iron is never going to be hotter than right now. <laughs> we have the, we have Phase Four Marvel movies tanking. We have everybody grasping it the film industry and what is going to be big and like is is everyone burnt out on every major franchise do we need to reboot spider-man for the fourth time in my lifetime what is going to be the answer here so like right now mother three nintendo let's uh let's go back to earthbound a little bit and <laughs> ground ourselves we've talked about this uh nintendo does not acknowledge the mother series in north america except in smash brothers to this day really uh, the only way you could play Earthbound for nearly 18 years was with an NES copy. Sorry, an SNES copy uh, or by emulation. Finally, in 2013, Nintendo releases Earthbound in their digital storefronts on the Wii U Virtual Console, a console <laughs> that did not sell very well. So you can sort of tell how desperate they were to <laughs> to get some revenue in there uh, because it becomes a top seller among the small player base. <laughs> It sold really well for the people who did have a Wii U. Uh, my brother and I had one, and he bought <laughs> Earthbound on it instantly. Over the years, it's since been re-released on the new 3DS Virtual Console, and it was included on the SNES Mini. And now, finally, in February of 2022, on the Nintendo Switch Online service, uh, along with Earthbound beginnings on the uh, NES Switch Online, at English patched that they uh, the English translation that they had this entire time. By the way, mm-hmm. they just never got around to releasing it in America. The Switch Online version was what I played in preparation for today's episode. Like I said, we're talking about preservation here. Uh, the Wii U and 3DS eShop will be closing in March of 2023. The SNES Classic has not been restocked by Nintendo since late 2018. Options for owning this game uh, digitally are narrowing. 
I've expressed this on the link to the past episode, but I do not think the Nintendo Switch Online model is enough. I think it's a half measure in terms of making legacy games available to consumers. It is not ownership. It is functionally renting. You can't purchase the game. You just Mm -hmm. rent the game as long as you maintain a subscription to this membership. So it's not a good system to maintain games long term. But it does mean that millions of people can play uh, Earthbound on the Switch today. So rating this game on like a scale of A to R, it's a bit murky. It's not an A. uh, It's not an R. But I'll split the difference down the middle. Uh, I'll give it a mid. I'll, I'll give it a mid minus because the fact that those storefronts are closing and it's becoming going to become impossible to purchase the game legally very soon, mid-minus. But you can <laughs> play the game fairly easily, as I did, uh, legally. How do you play this game today, and how did you play it before it was on the Switch Online, if that was how you played it? You know, I, I had the original cartridge uh, probably up until... I would say about 10 years ago, probably about 2012, something like that. And then, you know, I, I got rid of all of my SNES games and was moving and things like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, I had to reduce what I had and what I was moving with. So, you know, a lot yeah. of those games got donated or, or sold to local game stores and, and things like that to get into other people's hands that can enjoy them. So it wasn't until the SNES Classic that I was able to go and and revisit that but now like i have that my my snes classic is like always plugged in it is there and i mean it's solely my earthbound machine so sometimes my (laughs) son and i will play like the og mario kart because he has some fun going from mario kart 8 and then going all the way back and he thinks Mm -hmm. that's really quaint about hopping around corners (laughs) and uh some of the like systems in that so he has a he has a blast with that but other than that it's like Earthbound is all that I have that machine for. And, you know, I don't think we know, you know, is that going to last as long as my cartridge, which seemed indestructible and survived plenty of moves? How is that hardware going to hold up? And I, I'm really worried about that. I, I worry about preservation all of the time with games, especially games like this. Like these are cornerstones of what the game industry has become. Earthbound is a reference point for everyone. You know, I would say a vast majority of people making games have had some sort of interaction with Earthbound uh, and were shaped by it in some way. The fact that I just like can't get that as a physical cartridge in some way or like own that on a store is shocking to me. I, I just, I can't believe it. It's something Nintendo com- continues to do and has never sat right with me. And I, company I largely adore for a lot of the ways that they handle things in their systems, that ownership model is like, please just let us own a copy of, of something that we love. Yeah, you know, I'm 100% with you there. Availability being limited over time is always scary, especially with a game like this where <laughs> we were lucky to get anything. One day they're going to have to replace a Switch with something. You can't you can't make this the one console forever. What are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. You're going to have to rebuild the virtual console from scratch. Are you going to carry these things over? And they're not going to carry them over. They never carry them over. What are we talking about? It's just like I can't... You, you, people get stressed thinking about these things because these are legacy games that they don't support and i'm thinking about this a lot now in the wake of the uh internet archive Mm -hmm. uh, being sued by big by big publishers with billions of dollars and young adult authors defending it uh, on the on the claim that (laughs) these services take money that would go to these authors but that's not really the internet's fault they're just an archive that preserves you know everything video Mm -hmm. games things that are just out of print news episodes uh, sports matches that do not get re-aired anybody anywhere else. This is a library and not just like a library, but like a dedicated archive of all media seeing that B 
being like attacked because a few people may have lost a few dollars collectively over the years when it's really just like the publishers trying to like extract value from other people's labor. Mm -hmm. You're mad at the wrong people. You should be mad at the people not paying you enough for your work to be published Mm -hmm. uh, and not paying you enough in royalties, not the, not the, not the services that are just trying to make art readily available to people and let them check it out. Let's actually talk about Earthbound. <laughs> Another contributing factor to Earthbound's lack of success in North America can be attributed to the fact that it came out very late in the SNES's life cycle. It was released in Japan in August of 1994 and in America in June of 1995. 1995 was a very, very weird year for Nintendo despite a strong showing of SNES games. It was the year the PlayStation came out and to a lesser extent the Sega Saturn. Uh, it was also a year where the Sega Genesis actually outsold the Super Nintendo. And also perhaps most damning for Nintendo, uh, it was a year of the Virtual Boy. <laughs> rough, rough year, rough year. <laughs> Look, and we can joke on the Sega Saturn, but at least it didn't cause people actual physical harm to use. So Yes. Have mm. you ever been in, like, like, actually used one of those? No, absolutely not. I, I played the demo, like, at a, again, at Kmart. I don't know how Kmart comes up multiple times. I guess this era <laughs> of gaming, like, this is where you bought games was at the department store. But yeah, I mean, they had the Virtual Boy, like, on display. And, like, I remember my dad, my brother, and me all using it and just unilaterally hating it. Like, just felt <laughs> horrible to, to do anything with. My dad had terrible eyesight to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, like, it was just like, this is maddening. He's like, this will never work. And, of course, it, it, it crashed immediately. Yeah, in 1995, it sold... 700,000 units overall, which is abysmal, abysmal <laughs> for a console, like bombed. And they had to course correct with Nintendo 64. But talking about other games released in 1995, again, strong year for video games. Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, Tekken 2, Donkey Kong Country 2, Twisted Metal, Panzer Dragoon, Rayman, Star Wars Dark Forces, uh, Suikoden, Gex, and one of my very favorite games of all time, Chrono Trigger. Hmm. So... Incredible year for games. And Earthbound, very top of that uh, list, right there alongside Chrono Trigger. Uh, And this is a very special episode for the show because this is the first time I actually played a game for the show. Uh, The other games I had already played, uh, you reached out to me back in March saying that you'd be interested in talking about Earthbound. So that motivated me to sit down and play it in its entirety for for you, Jared. It's an incredible game. Thank you. (laughs) Keeper, I just, I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate you playing the game. I, I think it's something that you can go and like, you can read all about it and you can see the humor on display and, yeah. and, and you can get some of that. But I feel like there's such a musicality to this entire game. I think that the combat is one of a kind. It's something that you have to have a controller in your hand and actually go through the fights to to get the feel of, of how those numbers are revolving and moving. And we, we might get into that later. And yeah. just like the, the way it sets pieces up from the very beginning and leads you through that story and kind of like the darkening of despair, the way that it just sort of spirals, that it gets into bigger and bigger metaphysical examinations of of life and the universe and, and everything, for lack of a, a better phrase. <laughs> it examines so much. And, it, you know, it's like as you descend into each city is like another layer you're, you're pulling back. You know, it starts off as you know surface level of looking at, at corrupt cops and things like that and bullies <laughs> and, and things like that. It's like, yeah, I'm a kid. I hate the cops and I hate bullies. Like, I, I relate yeah. with that. But then it's just like, Hey, what do you think about the essence of evil in the world, and how does how does evil get out into the world, and what is the what is the remedy for that? And by the end, you're like, oh my god, okay, like this is this is where we're going with this, huh? Yeah, no, that's definitely like what gives it that like Stephen King edge to it, where 
evil isn't inherent to people. It is a force of nature that corrupts people and creates horrible systems and abuse, especially among kids. And kids are pure innocence. They're not born into the world with hate and evil. So something corrupts them and things like abusive uh, hierarchies and negligent parents and abusive police forces. That's what creates that darkness. That game's a great realization of it. And I 100% agree to your point that the interactive part of it really cannot be understated. You need to play this game physically to get the full experience or at least share that experience with someone playing it. Um, which brings me to my first question. Uh, I ask this question for everybody and I, I have to ask you too. What is something that this game does specifically that you wish other games would do? Oh, sure. No, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think a lot of times with RPGs and even modern RPGs, I feel like the combat systems... We, we really haven't had any sort of revolution in that for a long time. I think a lot mm -hmm. of people try. I think Persona does a really nice job with some of the stuff that they're able to build into those systems. Uh, but largely, you know, it's a lot of like, especially with active battle systems, like hold X to win the game and, and, and continue going, right? You know, a big flaw of Final Fantasy 15, you know, even Final Fantasy 7 Remake. I lauded praise on that earlier. Like, I'm not a big fan of that battle system in there. I, I don't think it's explained particularly well. And even by the end of the game, I didn't feel like I was really exploiting any of those systems. Right. Whereas I think when you get that battle system right, it makes it so you're not worried about repetitive battles. Oh, I hate random encounters. It's like you don't hate random encounters. You hate that the battle system isn't offering you anything fun or interesting to do. And I think that Earthbound was among the first games to take some chances with that. Number one among that is the pachinko like, you know, slot machine like scrolling HP bar, right? Yeah. So if you have 100 HP and something hits you and it does 120 damage, you don't just fall down like you would do in a Final Fantasy or any other game of that ilk. Uh, instead, you know, it does that quick rollback. And if you can get to your healer or get to an item in that amount of time, you could stop that mortal damage from happening and keep that person uh, on the battlefield. And you no, know, I just think that's wonderful. So I didn't originate this phrase, but something I like that has always stuck with me that the Kane and Rinse podcast uh, talks about is, is about the combat feeling crunchy. And I play Earthbound, you know, the combat feels crunchy to me, even though it's one enemy on there. You don't even see your characters, right? It's just usually one or two or three enemies standing there statically. But a lot's happening. You have like silly attacks. Everything has a goofy name. There's scrollers at the bottom as people are taking damage. You have status effects that are changing what you're doing. And there's always something happening. And I think that's best exemplified when you score a critical hit. You don't just see a big number right? A big number on the screen is great. The dopamine goes up, but it gives you that wonderful smash word art when you land that critical hit and gives you the big number in, like a, in a different type of font. And something about that just feels so good. I can swear when I like revisit that game that there was a controller shake or there was some sort of like haptic feedback for mm. when I got a smash attack, but it's like, that was all in my head. That was something that like I invented, like feeling, but it's like, it still feels like the controller shakes when you hit that smash attack, when you really land that like killer blow or when someone lands that killer blow on you. It just, they're able to signal what that battle looks like so well. And your imagination, I think, just does a good job of filling in the gaps. It doesn't need to be a hyper photorealistic you know, sword slash, it could just be like, okay, you swing this bat and this is what that looks like. Almost, you know, some D&D &D element to it. It's, I'm going to give you some flavor text and your mind can kind of fill in what that looks like, even though it's a crow with sunglasses standing on a black background, right? Yeah, no, I mean, like you're attacking enemies that are like either uh, police officers or uh, dirty hippies. <laughs> 
and then like things like traffic signs and yes. taxis, just like whatever it is, but you can feel the impact of your hits, even though really you're just, it's uh, the way that the battles are set up. It's like a POV shot of whoever you're battling. You don't see your player characters. You don't even see the weapons that you use. You will see animations for the spells that you cast for your characters, but it's really up to the sound design to really convey the impact of these hits. And it does it extremely well. I think the, best comparison that I can make for people who haven't played this game is imagine the Pokemon games where you get like a super effective and like the sound associated with that makes you feel like you just did big damage. And then like when you do a not very effective hit, it just like makes like a soft, like you, like you hit a rock or something. Mm -hmm. You, you have those mental associations in your head, but there's just like something a step further in earthbound that makes impacts like that hit even harder and it really does a good job at that i i I have to commend it for it that's a great point and you talked about this too the rolling hp meter is like one of the best innovations that i've seen on the the hp formula and basically any rpg the idea that you can basically cast a saving move before you die if your turn comes quickly enough after you take massive damage it's really cool like you said it's like a countdown it's Mm -hmm. not the guarantee that you will die it's just the threat of it there's that, and then there's quality of life mechanics that aren't in video games today still. Like, if you would reasonably beat an enemy within a turn, you just instantly win that mm-hmm. fight, and you get the experience from it, no matter how far you are in the game. If it's just like, oh, you you win this in a wash, we're not even going to do the battle. <laughs> that's That's great stuff. The fact that you can like get sneak attacks on enemies feels pretty novel for the time. There are some games that do that. In RPGs now, but this feels like a thing that was relatively new. Just stuff like that, that really makes, takes this game to another level and respects the player, gives them a lot of cool stuff to make the battles interesting. Another thing I like is their auto fight uh, Mm -hmm. thing. I think a lot of games would just make that just attacking, like just punching the enemy default attack, but the game's like AI or computer player, whatever you want to call it accounts for things like oh your character's low on health but it'll heal for you the battles play out automatically if you want to do that for low stakes battles it's great mm-hmm. yeah i mean i could just talk about systems i i, I like all the time i, th- I just think it, it does a really great job of, of ramping things up like it every mm. time you get to a new area it feels it, it feels very very different I, I think sometimes games of this era have a have a tendency to just be like okay it's the same thing but we slap some snow on it or we slap some desert on it <laughs> it's really just like kind of the same thing and, like earthbound never feels samey in that respect to me you're going to new areas and there always seems to be like some cataclysmic threat so you know at the, at the beginning of the game you know you're kind of running around like scooby-doo with, with paula and the runaway five and solving mysteries and like why is the circus so weird and that's a lot of fun and you get a, a lot out of that but like then it, it quickly like kind of ramps up from there and you are facing a, a lot of very real evil you're like okay well what if a religious cult you know trapped your best friend and was going to do a human sacrifice and that's like you know maybe the second area of the game it it, it ramps yeah. up in, in very interesting ways uh but then i think it makes sure to go back down like then there will be some fun stuff like you will do that there'll be a, a runaway five performance that, that you'll be involved in and it has those those moments where it kind of dips up and down to keep you going it doesn't keep that very high stakes tension and then you know towards the end it really really builds that back up again Right. It does a very good job of like handling like weird stuff without getting too dark with it. It still has like a a Saturday morning cartoon feel to everything. So when you go from 
the religious cultists cultists you 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 have like a little break between that and then you you do the runaway five stuff and then suddenly i'm in a town full of zombies what 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 the hell and everyone's <laughs> like yeah i won't go outside because of the zombie. but everyone's like kind of treating it like it's like a thunderstorm <laughs> they're not like too too scared by it but it is like clearly devastating the town horribly and physically and that goes into another thing i think i like the most about this game is that it is one it's just uniquely irreverent and Mm -hmm. that the sense of humor that this game has is just kind of incredible and groundbreaking and way ahead of games even now are capable of doing in terms of conveying jokes and humor this game deliberately goes at, like there's there's an interactive part to the humor that I love too, and that's something that video games just don't get very well with humor. So it's like most video games try to be funny, and they're very bad at it. Yes. They're very bad at being funny. There's like a sense of humor that is very specific to video games. It still feels like it's still catching up to humor. Things are said with the cadence of a joke, but it's not actually really a joke. It's just like a sound epic bacon whatever. Oh my god, that's like that's like having sex with a unicorn, just like that kind of annoying like borderlands humor borderlands is the first game i was picturing as well like it's like haha epic bacon narwhal isn't that clever i'm not talking about tales of the borderlands when i say that i'm not talking about like the telltale games no i love tales from the borderlands are one of my favorite that's like one of my favorite games ever but the borderlands series proper the shooter ones very bad at jokes and joking and connecting those jokes in my personal opinion like there's just like an interactive part of the jokes in earthbound that make you feel like you're included and mm-hmm. then there's also stuff that's like you're being pranked by the game. There's a sequence uh, late in the game where you're going through a dungeon that's designed by a dungeon master. Oh, and yeah, like, I'm so I am like, I, this is what I, I wanted to talk about this more than anything else on the podcast. He is a du- like you meet him early in the game when you are playing just as Jeff and he turns himself into a dungeon later in the game. Like he lives in the dungeon. He's part of the dungeon and you have to go into like his giant mecha dungeon to like go find him and ask him if he can borrow something of his. He is kind of shitty at level design, actually. He's not a good dungeon master. (laughs) He dedicates his life to it, but he has not. He is proof that the 10,000 hours thing isn't necessarily true. He keeps leaving generous checkpoints for you. And he leaves a bunch of notes just like editorializing about the dungeon and how proud he is of it. And the whole time, just this awful awful music is playing even in like the 16-bit sound chip you know that it's like supposed to be a bad song and you go to a sign and read it and he's like this song's my proudest achievement (laughs) he is so proud of himself and everything he did and you go through the dungeon and then you're like all right i'm done with that and then like you have to go back to the dungeon like five minutes later and do the whole thing all over again and most people would hate that but i was like this is hilarious (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I can't even put into words how a before the time something mm-hmm. like that was. And they actually, like, it is done flawlessly. Like, the fact that they ramp up the dungeon and just be like, hey, I'm into making dungeons. And it gives you the worst dungeon of all time to start off mm-hmm. with. And then you do another one. Uh, you're going through with Jeff. You're like, okay, it's a little bit better. But it's like, yeah, like, the humor's off. Like, the text is weird. Just let me do the dungeon, man. Like, can I just explore it? And he just, he won't. He never learns his lesson. And it just keeps escalating. <laughs> the Art, uh, when you finally get to the top of Dungeon Man itself, and his like face is protruding through the rock wall, and he like reveals himself to you that he has become uh, the dungeon that he has pickle ripped himself into the dungeon <laughs> itself, is just like one of my favorite reveals. I think about that artwork all the time. 
Uh, and that entire conversation is just stunning. I don't know if I don't know if any other section of a game has nailed something that well with what they were going for and like completely breaking down a trope within that system, poking fun at it and like parodying it in a truly funny way in the be- in the best most memorable way possible. It's actually teaching the player like the value of game design too. Like it's it's like including you on like jokes that were made by developers for developers but also just like look there's like philosophies and guides on how to do this you can't just like make a dungeon and hope that you you can't just like video games don't materialize out of nothing they're very deliberate choices out of it and it makes it genuinely funny like you said the reveal that he is the dungeon and that he's a giant walking mech and he joins your party and so (laughs) you have to walk between two trees and he's like i'm stuck i can't I'm going. I guess I just have to kill myself now, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm fucking worthless. <laughs> My life was a lie. And then, like five minutes later, you need like a borrow a sub read from him, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I have that in my garage. Come on in. <laughs> just come on in. Yeah, take the other room this time." I'm just like, "How? How do you pull that off?" And it works. Mm-hmm. And this is a game again, 1995. There is no voice acting in video games. Like this is all conveyed through text. Like that. There's timing with like the way that the text is like delivered. But beyond that, you have to be there has to be an interactive portion to all of this. Otherwise, the jokes don't land. It's just like washing over you. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really good. Another joke that I really love is you go up to an NPC and he gives you a pop quiz and he's like, finish this sentence. The Beatles blank today. And then you have the option. Yes or no. <laughs> and so it's like you click. Yes. He's like, correct. Yesterday. <laughs> it's like, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I couldn't write a joke that funny if I mm-hmm. had my entire life. Like, that is that is a perfect execution of a joke, and that is that means nothing to the story. It's just yeah. like a throwaway line, like just for fun, and like that is just a perfect encapsulation of what this game was going for. And like we talked about earlier, the the preciseness of of the translation and making that really work well. Yeah, and like adapting it into a joke that number one, like, is interactive, and two, like, works in all languages it's it's incredible balancing act and the thing about video games is how you are playing them and making it again including you in that and messing with you it's good stuff. there's like good humor that isn't interactive too i like the mr saturns who all talk like uh beavis from beavis and butthead and they convey that with like the the weird little squiggly text and they're just like (laughs) (laughs) you can barely make out what they're saying it like it gives you a headache to try and read it it's like wh- why would you do this and mm-hmm. the answer is i mean it's funny it's it's cute it's funny absolutely yeah it's like i don't know you you came to like the minion land and you have to go and do that <laughs> like your goal is through here and you have to befriend the minions to get out of this like do you accept your task like everything isn't the most dire thing it's like could you make friends with the minions if you needed to and get through get through a bunch of like slapstick comedy in order to to fulfill your goal yeah like there's just like a lot of like stuff that's just there to fuck with you when you're just playing as Jeff trying to f- rescue uh, Paula and Ness, you get items uh, that are just like a ruler and protractor. And you're like, oh, cool. How are they going to adapt these into weapons or tools that you can use? And you don't. You use them and it does nothing. It just takes up inventory space. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're useless. They don't. They, there's no like secret use. You look in the guide and even the guide's like, yeah, this shit's useless, man. Why would you pick it up? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. One more. One more gag for sure. audience. My absolute favorite one, actually. You're in the gold mines, and then you have to fight five guardian digger moles that 
uh, are all guarding like strong items that you can use in your quest. And the first one that you fight is going to go, I'm the third strongest mole of the five moles you have to fight in this dungeon. And then you go and fight the other one after that. And he's like, I'm the third strongest mole. You know who I am? <laughs> and then you realize like they're all think that they're the third strongest. No one thinks they're the first. No one thinks they're the weakest. Everyone just thinks they're right down the middle. And <laughs> when you fight them, they all have, there's like a background and every fight that's like a trippy background and theirs just has like the number three that's, that's the jokes are good the jokes are really really good in this game and again it's 1995 humor in video games would not be figured out until like what portal maybe in 2007 right yeah but this game is like pitch perfect in tone with them every single time i think that's the biggest like obviously undertale is hugely influenced by earthbound in a lot of ways but i think the thing that it really gets in spirit is conveying humor uh, without being like too cringy or weird with it. it I, I know because it's like such a fine line and I feel like it never crosses into that. It never, it, it, it never tries to go and like do too much. Like it does exactly what it is and it could be very corny and it could be, be very on the nose with some stuff. And I, I think that all works, but they never try, they never jump over that line. And that's where I think undertale succeeds. And, you know, I, I probably won't surprise you to hear that that's <laughs> has quickly become one of my favorite games uh, of all time as well and something i played through uh and tried to get every ending of it and, and everything mm-hmm. through that for much the same reason it's like i will do that i do i will do fun battles and goofy dialogue and like wild item names like that does a lot for me there's something to it it's not just doing something because it would be funny it's like there's still a story at the end of the day and you're still influencing that world and it's looking at a lot of bigger themes yeah it's not just bits and gags the entire time there's like a very good it does it, i think it's like adventure time where it's kind of like you do like the funny stuff but in that there's just like some real like dark existentialism that really hits you home and then like it's goofy jokes again but it's not it's not dismissing either tone it's just like living in like mm-hmm. a world that where humor and darkness coexist because that's reality for a lot of people Let's talk about the music of this game now. <laughs> yes. Um, like I said earlier, the music was composed by Kiichi Suzuki and uh, Chip Tanaka. Uh, Suzuki was also a composer for one of my favorite films of all time, Tokyo Godfathers by Satoshi Kon, mm-hmm. and written by uh, Kaiku Nobumoto, who was one of the primary writers on uh, Cowboy Bebop. Mm-hmm. Incredible film if you haven't seen it. Uh, not what we're talking about, though. Chip Tanaka was also a composer, and he was kind of like the in-house a uh, Nintendo composer who worked for them during the 8-bit and 16-bit era. Both musicians were heavily influenced by Western rock bands like the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and Tanaka brought a lot of reggae and hip-hop to this game. He loved artists like Sly and Robbie and A Tribe Called Quest, which, great bands, great bands, but not something you'd expect to hear in a, a Japanese-developed game, but they were trying to bring an authentic feeling to the American sense of music, and it's not just, you know white people doing that there's a lot of genres and it's very eclectic no i i mean i i would think we could easily do a podcast just doing a track by track you know breakdown of, of all the things that i love uh, about the music i mean chip tanaka has always been like from this moment one of my favorite composers you know i, mm. I definitely listen i will just go and listen to any soundtrack that he's done to listen to i listen to his solo stuff on my spotify like you know he just came out with an album you know i would say maybe five six years ago now but he, i mean he's still in that pocket like like that's still where he is is in that chip tune era uh and, and where he really excels like in that space and 
the chances that they take with this, with as limited as we know the hardware was and what they were able to do with that sound chip and the amount of expressiveness, the way they were able to convey tone and everything through that is just shocking. You know, we, we had Chrono Trigger right around the mm-hmm. same time. You know, I mean, Final Fantasy VI was also doing incredible things uh, with Aimatsu and, and, and his team uh, behind that. So there were some other people getting some amazing things out of the sound chip uh, as well. But I mean, to me, Earthbound is, is almost on another plane with the way... I, I don't know that anyone used it better. I think they mastered the technology with this game. Mm-hmm. I think it being a late era, uh, they knew exactly how to get every single bit uh, of oomph out of what they were going for, right? They didn't leave anything on the table with the soundtrack. And that's why they crammed every track possible uh, onto this cart. From what I understand, it was a 24 megabit cartridge, which was a big deal at the time. And a third of that was dedicated strictly just to the music of the game. And it's a big game. Like you said, it's pretty text heavy, a lot of worlds in it. They were very serious about the music and tried not to be... Uh, super compromising about it. I think there was like over 100 tracks written for it. Not everything was included, but they tried to fit in as much as they could because they wanted a very diverse music selection. And that's the true accomplishment of this game is probably the most diverse in the SNES library by by far. Mm -hmm. A lot of incredible soundtracks. I'm not diminishing the efforts made by any other games. Chrono Trigger is one of my favorite soundtracks. And you, you talked about that one, Final Fantasy VI, incredible soundtrack. Link to the Past, Mario World, mm-hmm. all great all great soundtracks. None of them have the variety of music that this game has. And that's not insulting. It's just how wild and how accomplished this, this soundtrack is to include so many different styles of music. You have Chuck Berry sounding music that they got away with in America by saying, oh, it's parody, you know, it, it, it doesn't count. Right. <laughs> Like you said, the Beatles and Beach Boys. Beach Boys was a huge uh, influence on the percussive notation that they used uh, developing this. Uh, Randy Newman was like the template for everything because they wanted everything to sort of come back to America and Americana. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like their basis for that as musicians, Japanese musicians understanding of what America was. But like you also have like weird music in there too, stuff that sounds like Frank Zappa and Talking Heads and Steely Dan and Can and Oingo Boingo. That's great. And there's music that's legitimately scary. There's music that's legitimately off-putting, catchy music, earworms, happy town music, scary, dark, existential music. It's, 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 It's all there everything and I mean, I mean as you're listing all of those artists it's like when i revisit this it's why i get something new out of this every every time that i play right mm-hmm. you know, when i go back and look at that now it's like who do i go back to time and time again with the artists i listen to it's like i always go back to talking heads i always yeah. go back to the beach boys i'm huge into brian wilson's music and and his importance to the american sound and you know i, I will go toe-to-toe with beatles historians all day uh, on how important brian uh, wilson's work is for for just so many reasons. I can't get into that now or we'll, we'll never be done talking. But it's like when I revisit that, I, I, I pick up on an Oingo Boingo reference or, or something like that. It just makes the game just even more memorable to me, right? I remember chasing down the New Age retro hippie specifically, uh, who has this absolutely wild song that plays. He's like a rare enemy. You'll maybe see one or two of them in the entire game. Uh, but like, I will absolutely go and chase that guy down, even if I'm over leveled and he's running away from me, just to go and I will fight him, put the controller down, and just play that on a loop. Nice. And, you know, there was no, unless you went to, until Starnet existed, there was no way to go and listen to these songs. So that was the only way. If you ran into a track and it was just for that boss battle and you beat that boss battle, like people don't, 
think about that, it's like, well, that's the end of that song unless I start a new game file, right? So, so yeah. some of this is like, that was the only way I could hear some of these songs that I was like hearing in my dreams pretty much because I was so obsessed with, with, with what I was playing. Even today, they don't release official soundtracks for a lot of Nintendo games, mm-hmm. and they're pretty strict about the copyright on digital platforms, so you have to tread carefully. God, I can't imagine this game without the music, and it's music that you can listen to in isolation, and it works perfectly in tandem with the game. And the music, music, especially American, Western, and English music, it's part of the DNA of this series. Um, the music of John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band was a tremendous influence on not just the composers, but also the director of the game, Sigisato Itoi. He, he says that the name of the series, Mother, has different meanings uh, each time he's interviewed and asked about it. Uh, he's mentioned the word mothership, as in the mothership, face aliens, as are the enemies of this game, but also mothership, as in the act of parenthood, as mm-hmm. in my mother. Mother Earth being the setting of the world and what is on the, the planet, obviously, that's on the title of the game itself. If you've played the first Mother game, you would know that Gigas's motivation has to do with his family and specifically like his relationship with his adoptive parents, uh, specifically his mother. That that drives the plot a bunch. To bring it all back to music and John Lennon, the song Mother by John mm. Lennon, which is apparently just a huge influence on him and his life. And I think that's just kind of kind of amazing that all those meanings work and you can see it all when it's explained. Yeah, there's nothing there that you know I, I would have any argument with. Right? They're they're all kind of there, and it, it's amazing that they could be so intertwined. And it could just be a song reference. He could just be directly referencing a song he likes. But all of those, all of those explanations are valid. Yeah, I really am drawn to just the John Lennon one specifically because the idea of just like taking a song, going yoink, and making it the title of your series is the best. Uh, obviously, the lyrics and stuff have thematic significance, and clearly the. You know, the album uh, John Lennon and Plastic Ono Band have clear musical influence, too. It's just it's, it's just a baller move to just take a series and a na- an established name for something and put your name on it, too. <laughs> Incredible. Before we go into the themes of the game itself, we do have to kill our darlings a bit on this podcast as well. <laughs> What is something that you wish this game did better? Sure, yeah, that's tough, right? You always want to be like, you know, this is this is a perfect game. Like this is this is like what I want out of a game experience. And you know, I, I think in my memory, I gloss over any of those dollar points, maybe that that I wasn't into the first time around. But yeah, I would say like even on revisiting multiple times, like I, I feel like the character of Pooh has never clicked for me. I've never really understood exactly what that character was going for. I, I don't know if it's if it's commenting on like our perception of the East and how we like to make that mystical and magical, and it's kind of a takedown of that. Uh, because sometimes it seems like that's played too straight and that character has just never really landed. He's just like, never my favorite in my party. Like, I just don't get enough out of him. You get him so late in the game, he almost feels a little bit tacked on as well. So yeah, I just have never been, never been a big fan of, of Pooh and like it, at any stage. I just like, I'm like, okay, like I was going to just dealt with, with three people. The only other thing, and this is just largely quality of life, is when you get a character, it's that classic thing where they're 10 levels behind you. And uh, mm-hmm. usually have to spend the next hour or two leveling them up just so they don't die, you know, instantly to one attack. So, I mean, those are two kind of small, like one smaller qualm and then one, I guess, a little bit bigger with with some of the characterization. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's not it's not a perfect game by any means, but I wasn't anticipating the, the poo thing because I guess I'm 
I mean, you've had 20 plus years to think about it, but you are absolutely correct at how uh, extraneous he does feel to the party. Like they, they established very early in the game, like you're going to have four, four people total are going to save the world. Mm -hmm. You have Ness and then you have Paula for a while and then you get Jeff and then Jeff is like the perfect third edition. Who's like a good foil to everything. He has like a completely different relationship with his family that the two leads do. And then uh, he just doesn't have the, the the PSI powers that Paula and Ness have. It, it, it really works. But then you get like two thirds to 70% of the way through the game. And then suddenly you start having a vision and then you go to the East, basically, <laughs> like you said, uh, and you're not really quite sure what it's trying to be because the, the imagery is South Asian, mm-hmm. but Pooh looks distinctly East Asian and they're just like contradictory cultural everything and then his name's poo which isn't really not a name i've ever heard used for a child so (laughs) but it's weird and then everyone treats him like a prince and everyone is in love with him and there's like there's like a fetishistic angle to it but also like a mystical angle to it so you can sort of see where like the 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 parody comes in to your point Mm -hmm. and he never quite gels as a character because his motivations are a bit unclear and like you literally said he feels tacked on because after you do that segment he literally just appears and he's like i'm poo don't question anything i'm part of your team yes right yeah um so you just get, you get so invested in paula and jeff through their quests and like they have a mm-hmm. great introduction and you really like they become part of your group and you know exactly what they're about and like you said jeff fits right in and he gives you exactly what your party didn't have uh like the, the good like random gadget ninja type character who's just going to throw stuff and use inventions on you but yeah, people just like he doesn't he just doesn't fit. And like you said, he just appears. Like, I don't know. Earthbound is too good for that. They're too good for the shortcut of like, uh, we needed a fourth and this is this is what we had. I think they could have done a rotating fourth, like a Final Fantasy IV style, where you kept getting like new party members into that slot. Like maybe Dungeon Man would be there permanently for a little while. Maybe Pooh even is a character for a while, but he gets rotated out at some point, right? I think that would even make more sense with the conclusion and the ending about like all these people you partied up with, you know, joining up together and the, you know, the power of friendship triumphing overall, who is just like, well, I'm here. I'm like, oh, why are you with Ness? Like, why are you following this kid with a baseball bat around? It doesn't make sense. He should almost be the party leader when he walks onto the scene. Yeah. I would like to know a little bit more about the development of that. Like if there was like stuff that they had to cut from the game, I'd just be curious what the, if that has anything to do with it. I don't dislike anything about Pooh. In fact, the solo segment with him has one of my favorite moments of the game where you're doing the meditation and you are challenged by a a spirit and it becomes this really spiritual and religious battle where um, he's like, I'm going to break your legs. And then like your health bar goes down and he's like, like he just like keeps going, do you accept this? Like, uh, like it's like, there's like this very, I don't have a lot of frame of reference for a lot of the non-Christian religions based stuff besides like religion 101 classes. Mm-hmm. But this is very much like the story in the Bible where, you know, the devil keeps tempting Jesus uh, in the desert is kind of my frame of reference for that. But he's like, I'm going to break your legs. I'm going to break your arms. I'm going to rip your ears off because you can't walk anymore anyway. And then he's like, I'm going to take your eyes out now because why do you need to see? And he's like, now I'm talking to you in your brain. I'm going to destroy your sense of self now because you don't have a purpose to live anymore. This just becomes like the music video for one by Metallica. Um, <laughs> what a reference. Um, it's like this really weird and dark segment, like this child rated video game. And it's happening to a 10 year old. I was physically uncomfortable. And this is keep in mind. I did this last week. It wasn't mm-hmm. like growing up doing this, but it was just 
God, Jesus Christ. And then he's like, I have my ego death. I'm here to help you guys now. All right, let's do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Like, it's just like, yeah, I mean, that segment is wonderful. Like, that battle is so wonderful. I just think it it could be a little bit more thoughtful with the payoff of that. Like, I, I don't feel like he ever gets, like, that resolution I really want from, from su- like, that suffering and that ego death. Yeah. In terms of if I'm okay to, you know, offer some criticisms of the game as well, um, the inventory caused me a little bit of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the purpose behind it that they, these are kids. They can't carry a bunch of stuff with them, but having like 10 inventory slots and you have a bunch of key items that you have to carry with you at all times sort of becomes a huge problem, especially before you even get Paula in your team. And you're just like, Ness just waddling around with this, <laughs> maybe two healing items and like eight key items at a time. And then you do get the S cargo express, which is Mm -hmm. like your item storage system, but you have to call a guy and then the guy has to come to you and he's like, I can take three items and it costs you $18. What do you, what do you want to get rid of for now? And you give it to him, and you have to do the whole thing again. If you have more stuff you want to get rid of, or if you can't sell any of it, it, it's, it's, it's a bit cumbersome. There's some Mm -hmm. stuff that I don't mind that this game does. That's cumbersome. Like I don't mind going to the hospital and hotel to do two separate healing sessions. I get that. But st- the items inventory thing specifically kind of bugged me a lot. Yeah, I wonder what like what were the limitations there that that made all of those systems? Because it, it does. It's I mean, it stops the action dead. Like you're in the middle mm-hmm. of a dungeon. There's places where you'll get two, three key items that you 100% need to progress any further. And it's like each time you come to a dead standstill and have to ask Cargo Express your way like out of trouble. It's like no, we just yeah. needed some other like drag and drop like other system put in it put in place. There's that there's like a part where you don't need the pencil eraser for hours at a time mm-hmm. and you put it away in the S Cargo Express and then you like come back to the one section of the game again where you need it and you have to shit let me call them up and hey remember remember that thing from eight hours ago i dumped yeah can i get that back and use it once thank you it's it's strange but i i it's nitpicking a generally very 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 good game so right like that's that's the harshest criticism so yeah i don't i don't think any of that is too damning i think this game is still very playable today maybe not accessible but it's still a game you can like play and understand especially with some nice quality of life stuff that they've done uh, on the switch release uh that makes this an enjoyable experience so yeah if you do want to play the game i'd recommend the switch version and to make the game as authentic the game experience as authentic as possible obviously they can't just give you a copy of the uh, strategy guide but they do have the original strategy guide in its entirety completely freely available online so Mm -hmm. if you want to download it and use that as your official strategy guide which is what most people would recommend instead of looking up like a a walkthrough you can do that and it's genuinely helpful and it gives you a lot of information that the game does not give you willingly it also Mm -hmm. like harkens me back to an era where people were really just putting their whole ass into strategy guides. And like, yeah. this, this Nintendo one is like one of my favorites. There's so much like flavor text written in there. There's, they, they have a lot of fun like setting it up. They do like a newspaper like report in each town that you go into that are rehabbing yeah. the events. It like keeps you on like the plot points and things like mm-hmm. that. I remember how excited I would get to like turn the page each time I got to a new town uh, and get introduced to new enemies, new scenarios and all of that. It, it's just wonderful. Like even if you're never going to play this, like look up the yeah. strategy guide and just flip through it and take a look at some of the enemy designs. Some of the, some of the examples of humor, the item names and all of mm-hmm. that. I, I think there's something to be gained just from interacting with that media in that way i'm trying to think if there's any other uh criticisms i have of the the game oh there is one that it's like wait hold on do you hear that music oh shit hold on 
just taken instantaneously. I'm a photographic genius if I do say so myself. All right, all right. Get ready for an instant memory. Oh God, it's this guy. Oh my oh, God. Oh, the fuzzy pickles guy. And get ready for an instant memory. Can I take your picture, sir? Hey, hey. What's your name? You, you, you right there. Jared. Oh, I know a guy named Jared. <laughs> He's a fan of my pictures. <laughs> I'm gonna take a picture of you right now for my collection. All right, get ready for an instant memory. Sure. I don't, I, I, Jared, I don't like this guy. <laughs> no, no. I, I said, look at the camera. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I will still right. say fuzzy pickles though. This is this is something I've taken out of Earthbound. So I will ask when I'm taking a photo, I will ask people to say fuzzy pickles. So this does <laughs> this does live on as an earworm that is invaded by everyday speech. It do, it does take over things. Say fuzzy pickles. <laughs> <laughs> It makes no sense, and I, I don't I don't know. I, it's, just, it's one of my takeaways from this game. Like, Fuzzy Pickles is a thing that, that is in my vocabulary. It, it, it does conjure a scary image, though, and it doesn't. It certainly makes it feel perverted that he's saying it to children. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> this, this voyeur that follows you around town to town. It's like, did you, can you just help Paula when she's abducted by cultists and maybe, like, get a little more active? He's like Tom Bombadil. He seems super powered. He just falls from the sky. He's like... All right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now let's do a funny one. <laughs> oh my God. That, that would be the modern equivalent. I'm going to show this to my friend Jeffrey later. <laughs> and I always just imagine, like, it happens at key moments. So you imagine, like, you just fought this, uh, like, gigantic mole, and you're, like, beaten and bloody and, like, trying to get to a healing point. And, like, this guy interrupts you for the next, like, 90 seconds. I don't know. If this was made today, like, Ness would eventually fight him. Like, there would be a boss battle against the picture guy. Like, you would eventually have to defeat him. Maybe that's yeah, a criticism. The, uh, the criticism I have is you never get to fight him, like, as a boss and, like, take him out of the picture. You don't get any agency in telling him to fuck off. He's <laughs> that would be, if they made that today, you would get that option. I think they would understand, like, this guy needs to be dealt with. No, no, no. Shut up. Shut up. Dude, shut up. Be cool. Be cool, man. <laughs> Say fuzzy pickles. <laughs> You know I can't come within 15 feet of you. Get, 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 the, get, the, get the fuck back. Get the fuck away from me. That's why he's flying away. It's a magical restraining order in this world that just casts him as soon as he lands. I can look, but I can't touch. <laughs> Each time he has a slightly longer lens, uh, just so he, he gets pushed back further and further. But yeah, no, it's, it's funny. Like, it is genuinely funny. It just always lasts slightly too long. Yes. I do. Oh, one thing I do like is every single time Ness does like the the peace sign, he's like really into getting his picture taken. Like the other kids are just stone faced the entire time. But that is funny. He is oddly into it, and everyone else is yeah is stoic through the entire ordeal. And uh, Ness plays his part. Like I don't know what that's saying. Maybe, maybe that's just some good characterization of like yeah, you know, he doesn't lost his humor or, or or boyishness through it all. He's like not taking it too seriously. He's taking it in stride and. He has like the same face that he makes when he's riding the bicycle when you can ride a bike in the game. It's nice. It, 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 he's a sweet kid, I imagine. Extremely violent, but sweet. Yeah, yeah. Like he's just doing the violence because like he doesn't know any other way around it. Especially at the beginning, he just seems like so hapless. He's just like trying to get through an arcade and fighting mm -hmm. a giant robot. And then he's like, okay, like I'm going to go do the soundstone. I'm going to go tell the cops because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what good boys do. I'm going to go tell the cops what's up. And they're like, well, we're going to let's take care of this kid and teach him a lesson. Police, fight this kid one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> 
the Mambo the, the, Togo uh, Foxtrot martial arts being one of my my favorite favorite bits of flavor text from the game. Just just wonderful. There's so much stuff early game that is jammed into there. The game teaches you lessons. Don't trust cops. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Eric Cartman sucks no matter what, what version of him exists. <laughs> It's it's genuinely weird to me that Trey Parker like is familiar with Earthbound and was influenced by it in some way. Like that is a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense when you see that you see like the characterization uh, no, of Loki yeah. and everything. Yeah, it's it's all right there. Another thing I wanted to shout out was another localization thing with Paula specifically. Apparently, I found this out doing the research for this episode. She's just kind of like a normal girl who in in the original version of the game in japan but like um that the the localizer wanted to sort of like give her a little bit more than that so she kind of make the way that it's described is like kind of want to make her a little violent like she delights in the destruction a little bit and she's braver and it's and that makes sense because she's the offensive sorcerer spellcaster Mm -hmm. and everything um i think you only have one offensive spell as ness the psi rockin and then Pooh is like fairly balanced. I think he has like a little bit of everything, but no, besides prey, I mean, you don't use, you don't use Paula for healing. No, no. Yeah. That's, that's not your dedicated healer ever. What was your PSI attack name when you just played through? I didn't, re- I didn't know what the, the deal was. I vibes. I just called it vibes. That's amazing. <laughs> like I picked my favorite food in real life, which is pasta. Mm-hmm. What do you call PSI Rockin? I'm trying to remember the original one uh, I, I used on my first save file. I remember it just was like a non sequitur that like I didn't. I clearly didn't understand the question, or I tried to fit in something that that didn't fit the five character limit, so it was like weirdly cut off. I distinctly remember my brother like having a playthrough on there eventually too, because there were like two, three sl- uh, save slots, and yeah. like instead of just his name is Nathan, and instead of putting Nate, he just put Natha N A T H A. And it just went with that. So the entire game, his whole save file, everything, everyone's just calling him Natha. Because I, yeah. I just don't think we knew what the heck we were doing. We're like, okay, like, why am I answering these questions? And then, like you said, with Rockin', if you mess that up, it kind of messes with your game a little bit. It kind of looks stupid every time you cast it. You can call it PSI butts if you want to, but then that kind of <laughs> makes like the, the Gigas fight kind of weird because he's one of the only bosses that can also use PSI Rockin' on you. And it's yes. like, he uses butts on me. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I did vibes because I wanted to like, I didn't want to be too jokey with it. I mean, I wasn't mm-hmm. streaming it. Why, why, why be too jokey about it? No, the vibes is really good. I like that. That's a great answer. So let's go to the themes a little bit because that's a the significant part of the series and why it has endured in the minds of people like the vibes, so to speak. <laughs> can certainly go a long way, the atmosphere, the characters, but there's a through line that makes it stick with people long-term. And I kind of want your take on the themes and what you take away from this game on a deeper level than just, it's a really good game. I think I'll start with kind of like my themes that kind of resonate with me over time in a way that I feel like every time I played through this game, it's made me feel something different. And that has to deal with the character of your father, who you only have in a relationship with the entire game through a phone call. You know, your, your mom's in the house, you never see your dad. The only way that you have that relationship is calling and he sends you money and he seems really nice. Like he's always nice to you on the phone. He gives you good advice. Like he, he genuinely seems like a good character. However, he is completely absent from the events of the game itself. Even at the end, is like I kept waiting for it. I kept waiting for like the father reveal and the him to be like in a frame, and he's still not. He's a phone booth still at the end of the game, right? Like there <laughs> yeah. is no sprite for the dad. Like the sprite was never made. He's not a character in any way that that you can run into. Yeah, it's a Kratz cradle situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So that's something for me personally that uh, that I've had, I think, a, a, a growing relationship with over the years. When I first played the game, uh, you know, my dad traveled a lot for work. So there was a lot of taking my dad to the local airport and uh, flying him on the plane and seeing him off on his various adventures for business. And there were a lot of phone calls like that, a lot of milestones and a lot of big things that I remember communicating over the phone. You know, I would never say that my dad was like an absentee dad or anything like that. But, you know, he was somebody that was traveling a lot for work. And sometimes, you know, that was that relationship that you had to have. You know, I've reflected on that with different playthroughs and how I feel about that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, three, uh, nearly four years ago now, uh, I, I lost my father suddenly, but over like like an extended, like really brutally hard part of my life. And I think that that specific part of the game now has taken on a, a completely new significance for me, right? So now mm-hmm. you have this absentee dad, you have, the, you have this dad that, that is not distant because he's busy with work or something like that. He is busy because he physically can no longer be there. Now, when I play this game, I I think about that of how do I relate to my father who I can no longer talk to? What would he be saying to me in these key situations of my life? What advice would he be giving me via telephone if he was able to? More and more when I play this, like I just have an appreciation for what Etoy was was trying to say through that. I know he had a complicated relationship with his parents uh, that I think went into the design of that and how his Ness's mother and father react in that game. But I, I, I think it's amazing how just that element, which is which is a goofy element, right? The fact that that he does that, but from a young age, I like I related to that, and now as an adult, and, and now as somebody. Without my father, I, I relate to in a much different way. And now I think about that in, in terms of loss and in terms of uh, of connection and, and, and the spiritual connection, a way you can reach out to that person who is no longer there. And it inspires me as a dad today. How can I make sure that I am not Nessa's father, that it is, that is parenting via the phone? How can I challenge myself to be an active father that is part of that life and wouldn't have my son going through these trials primarily by himself, like that entire game. He is wandering town to town. He, he is taking on that adventure. He is uh, Ash from the Pokemon series. He has so many protagonists that, that, that leave town one day and go on these grand adventures. And, and that's wonderful. But uh, I, I think that was very of, of that era. That was very latchkey parent. That was very of that. And we're still telling those stories. And now I think it's like, now I'm, I'm relating to that in a different way as a dad and how you know I would like to parent and making sure that, that I'm active. I know that was all a lot, but I just feel like for me, that was a theme that continues to resonate with me almost more than, than anything else. A lot of these themes took a backseat to how I relate to the father character uh, or lack of uh, in Earthbound. I, well, firstly, thank you for sharing with that because you, you did a really good job and I really appreciate your story and I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, thank you. you know, family losses are very, very, very challenging and very difficult. So thank you for sharing your story you're a great guy and I know how much you care about your family and your kids and it really comes through. And I, I thought, I thought that was worth telling you that. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I, I see your enthusiasm and your passion and the things that you talk about and the people in your life that you talk about. So just conveying that to you not to get too sentimental. It's, no, uh, <laughs> that was good. And, you know, I mean, we've been joking around a lot, but I, you know, this doesn't just stick with me because it's the funny, you know, the funny item game. This sticks with me for these much deeper elements that I think I can keep coming back to that hit me in a different way on each playthrough. 
I'm 100% with you there. I mean, there's something, I mean, I have my own father baggage that I won't get too deep into. Um, I, I'm a lot more like Jeff than I am like Ness necessarily, which is why I, I uh, that's why I value his character a lot. Just kind of like the guy who feels like he's forgotten and left behind while the dad does his own thing and doesn't really know how to be nurturing. Mm. Uh, so I did go into it a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, please. that's what I appreciate because that's a completely different experience that, that I didn't, you know, I, parenting comes up a lot in this and about, and about like presence and about being there and about like, is it enough to just be successful and, and all of this, if you're never around or you're not a part of your child's life is like, is, is that what parenting is? And maybe, you know, in the 80s and 90s and things, when these developers were coming out, I think they were addressing that. You see basically every kind of parent uh, in this game. Pokey and Porky's parents are abusive outright, mm-hmm. uh, very, very awful to them. And you see how they raise like such shithead kids. I mean, the little one seems fine, but Porky's just like a monster. Mm-hmm. And like you talk to the dad of that family and he's just like, your dad owes me a lot of money. And I don't like you and I resent living next to you and you you and your family stink <laughs> functionally is what they're like. And then you run into him and his kid later in the game and he's like, I'm rich and successful now. Get the fuck out of my office. Sort of <laughs> shit. Like you see him like he's he's shitty when he's poor mm-hmm. and he's shitty when he's rich. He's just an abusive monster of a man. Paula's parents are attentive, like they care deeply about their child, but they're also like she's strong. She's independent. Yeah, y'all go out, have fun. You know, Jeff doesn't seem to have a mother and his father is just kind of like, oh, hey, hey, man, uh, <laughs> you look older. Yeah. See ya. Right. <laughs> like Jeff, like a very even like doesn't even refer to his dad as dad. He just kind of refers to him as like doctor, his last name. It's it's a very, very professional relationship to have with your father. Mm-hmm the dad is like almost comically just like neglectful and it's like damn all right that that kind of hits in a weird way because mm-hmm. he doesn't know how to talk to him he's just like i, I sent you away to school what yeah <laughs> the general presence of adults just seem kind of neutral to nests and don't really question everything too much and they're almost like comically like whatever or if not they're just like actively cruel to him mm-hmm. I, I find that stuff very interesting because you don't see rpgs question like the young kid protagonist thing very much and this one's almost constantly acknowledging it but not in like a condemning way but in just kind of like a adults are weird and kind of fucked up when you think about it mm-hmm. right yeah i mean you're just dealing with everyone's baggage from like minute one from the moment you walk over into Pokey's house and you see that abuse on display, it's like, like it's a central theme. It's established super early on about what these relationships are. And whether you have, like you said, adults openly antagonistic and battling you is one thing, but it's uh, everyone has their own baggage with their parents, with, with, with the, the antagonist as you know, adversarial relationships with, with everyone in different ways. I don't know. It, it, it all sticks out to me. It's, on my most recent playthrough, I, I, I think like Pokey's arc at, at points really stuck out to me. It stuck out to me in a different way I, I wasn't expecting. As a kid, I just hated that character. I like detested yeah. everything that he stood for. I didn't understand how you could be so cruel, how you could be so evil, so like pointlessly evil and want all of this like wanted destruction uh, for no reason. Like it, it, it just didn't make any sense to me. I, I, I couldn't unpack what that character was going through. And like my, my yeah. most recent playthrough, it just was like so sad. There were points where I like felt I had to like take a five minute break with him. Like it was just like, it's so shattering. And when you kind of realize that 
All Pokey wants is to have a single friend, a person that cares about him in his life. It like almost breaks me down. It, I think it's like that powerful. And it took me so long, I think, to get to that point. He's not just like some monster. He's not an unknowable evil. He is a a, a product of all of these broken systems, of the broken home life, of uh, of shattered family, of not fitting in, of like having all of these like needs psychologically, uh, physiologically, everything that he's not having met that, that is like kind of turning him into that person. I, I know Mother 3 that, that Porky is the main antagonist of that. And I would like, I'm, I'm super excited to see if that gets unpacked, uh, if that gets like looked into further, because I find it super fascinating to look that and i think a lot of what people fall into now is trying to rehab the villains of a series and all of that and explain like oh these people aren't so bad you know i i don't think it's like that i think it's more that it's deconstructing it's deconstructing that person layer by layer to get to the middle of it and it's just loneliness it, it, it's just like this bottomless pit of loneliness that he can't fill no matter what he does the alliances he makes the money he makes any of it he sees that nothing fills that void in him and that's just like i don't know it breaks my heart he's not just like a like a flat character you can read him as a flat character if you want to but if you really want to like look into the fact that he is the supporting antagonist of the story and he's always getting in your way i mean like they clearly want to say something with him the fact that he's there at the beginning and that he interferes in the middle and at the very end he's just fully embraced the darkness and tries to weaponize it Mother is about cycles. It's about hmm. generational experiences. The fact that, I mean, like the, the fact that the name of the series is Mother kind of points in that direction to me, at least. I, I don't, like I said, never played the original Mother, but I understand that to be about, you know, Gigas has family that raised him and then like the family that he feels compelled to honor, like the alien species that he comes from, who's like, kill everything, destroy everything. Hmm. He kind of breaks away from the family. Porky or Pokey, uh, he is part of an abusive situation and he is like exposed to like cruelty every day of his life and he finds it easier to embrace the evil than to embrace like the destiny of or the significance of like Ness's mission he's like i'm kind of a coward i don't want to do this by and then you run into him later and he just keeps lucking into like situations with bad people and falling into bad crowds mm -hmm. because it's like easy power accumulation you know I mean like he's, he's he's like a like i don't like to be like uh, so reductive about it but it is very much like the the right wing kind of grift that he's always on it's it's very representative of that like the eric hartman like exploiting the issue of the weak situation it's 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 it's, it's all there and ness has like family that isn't necessarily like the best parents necessarily but they they seem trusting of him and whenever you call your dad whenever you call your mom and whenever you call your sister it's always a nice conversation your mom's like I love you. I know you're saving the world. Be safe. Your dad talks to you and he's like, do you want to take a break? You don't have to always be on the grind. You can, you can take a break, which is, you know, ironic considering the fact that he's always at work, mm -hmm. but he genuinely cares about his kid, even if he isn't always there. And then your sister is actively trying to help you on your journey. Like you have a support system and you have a condition that Ness can accumulate over time called homesickness. If you don't check in with your family and call your mom specifically, I think that's very, very touching mm -hmm. and gives away like what this series is about. So yeah, no, I mean, this, it, it's, it's about cycles. It's about generational nurturing and it's about love and what that means to the, the family structure. I think that's perfectly put. I, I honestly, I couldn't sum up the themes of that any better. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it all accumulates in the fact that, like, your final battle is against Gigas, and you're literally traveling through time to fight him. You mm-hmm. are trying to defeat something at the root, the, the corrupting force, the Stephen King's it that is responsible for the evil and wrongdoing in the world. The roots has been pulled out, and you want to create a better world out of that. And that's why the game, like, really started touching me towards the end, like... The Jeff's dad becomes more present, even if he's not becoming more better. There's like an effort to be around and he's there in the final moments. Mm -hmm. You have to pray to the people that um, you encounter throughout your journey to heal and defeat the evil. I'm talking a bit too much and you know, you you get the point, but if you have anything else you want to talk about with themes and everything. No, I like that. And I, I think it's almost a trope now. The like friends we made along the way was the power to defeat evil all along. But it's like, when I look back at that, that was the first time I ran into that theme, like in anything that, that I looked at, it was the first to like play with that. And I think it, it, it really worked well on me. And I mean, I think it's still something that, that easily flips that switch today. It's probably a reason why a lot of writers and directors and authors continue to to put that switch in their work. But man, it was just, it's so affecting to go back and to see, like revisit all of those people along the way that you were able to pull out of dire situations and you saved towns and you got people out of malicious contracts and you brought people back to their senses from making terrible mistakes. Just being able to, to revisit that is it's really powerful. Like it just works they, and, and they earn it. There's a lot of, I think, media that tries to do that and they don't earn the friends we made along the way ending. But Earthbound absolutely does. They, you make these solid relationships. You have an impact on these people. And it's not just defeating the bad guy. Like sometimes the evil is capitalism and it's paying the $10,000 and getting the, the runaway five out of town as fast as possible. And like there you defeated capitalism. Like that was the actual enemy in that zone before you you moved on. I think when you go back and you see them, you're like, I get this. Like these people would be rooting for me. They know the sacrifice that I had to make, which we didn't even touch on. The, the fact that they have to destroy their physical bodies and separate <laughs> from their souls in a way that, you know, they're told that it's no guarantee we're going to come back from this. Like this might be a final sacrifice for all four of us. Uh, and to do that, I don't know. I think about that a lot too. It's like, if there wasn't plans for a mother three or something like that, does this end a bit more nebulous, a bit darker, a bit something like that? Do we even get an ending that shows them coming back or do we just end with everyone else in the towns uh, celebrating, but maybe not the final everyone returns to their home uh, ending. That's a good point. And I think that what you're talking about, like the the friends we made along the way trope, yeah, there is a lot of media that does that and has definitely played with it in the years since. But I do think that really making it again into an interactive part of the game really sells it. And like you can clearly see how that is like the prototype for what would become the Undertale pacifist system where you love the enemy to death and you make a friend. You make the world a better place by doing that. Earthbound doing that by basically like showing you all the people who you've made an impact on in a positive way or all the people in the world that care about you helping you out in this final run. It's good stuff. Like you said, the ending thing where you have to turn yourself, you have to transplant your soul into a robot to take the last boss. I thought about that existentially the whole time I was making that final run to mm-hmm. to Gigas because it's like, holy, like I'm, I'm not even Ness anymore. The sprites in the overworld are just like wearing like the hat and you're like a like an actual like square rectangular mm-hmm. toy robot marching towards the end and i just like thought about that in such a weird way and then you go to gigas's like container where he is stored mm-hmm. in and you don't know if that's necessarily a reflection of ness or a projection of him showing out of the 
out of the eye or whatever it is that he's in, Mm -hmm. but it it haunts you a little bit because it's like, is this my soul being reflected or is this like an evil version of me? Is this Mm -hmm. Nenten, the protagonist of the previous game? What is this? And it's, it's haunting and effective and it's stuck in my mind for such a childish game to be so dark and mature at the end. Yeah. It earns those reflections. It earns you just, thinking about that well after you turn the game off and, and it had something more to say. And I, I love when a game is able to ascend to that level and you turn it off and you can't turn your brain off because you keep reflecting on those themes and, and what it could be talking to you personally. Is it is it pulling from a personal experience that you need to reflect on or a higher theme that maybe you want to do some more research on or you need to activate within yourself? And Earthbound just yeah. really is masterful at tugging those strings. No, it's terrific, uh, which brings me to my next point about like impact. We mm-hmm. talked about influence. This is a show about the relationship between players and the game. Earthbound is a work that has influenced and inspired many artists and creators over the years. It was a major n- influence on games like Yume Nikki, Lisa, Amori, uh, South Park, The Stick of Truth, most notably Undertale and its spinoff, Deltarune. Mm-hmm. But those are pieces of media and we see how like people have internalized this work and put it into future works but to bring it back to you jared how do you think this game has shaped your life and influenced your tastes uh in the years since you've played it you've talked about the fuzzy pickles thing but (laughs) what else (laughs) no 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 the fuzzy pickles thing for for sure on the surface level but i think like the way in which i interact with a lot of the world you know was a formative text here in my life. Like when I would look back and be like, what influenced me? It's like, I think like Earthbound and Final Fantasy VII and some of these JRPGs that were asking bigger questions at the time, you know, I think put me on the, the path that I'm on now. You know, I, I think if you follow my tweets or anything, like I, I am pretty much like a radical leftist down that <laughs> path. Like I see the the corruption in, in capitalism and in, in greed and how it ekes into and corrupts and destroys like everything that it touches, whether it's it's making media inaccessible, whether it's just like not getting people paid for the work that they're putting in and, and all of that. I, I just see a lot of capitalism as, as this gigas like force that, you know, is infecting everything. I, I don't know if this is exactly, you know, leftist praxis as, as, a, as a text you could be sending uh, our comrades home with to study. But I definitely think it started making me question uh, some things in my life at, at a much earlier age. I, I think I was able to go uh, and look at things. And I think, you know, playing Metal Gear and, and things like that in an early age where the, to examine war and what war meant, meant that, you know, when I was in school a couple years later for the events of 9-11 and things like that, and I saw people jumping on the pro-war bandwagon and all of that, that I was they already had my antenna up very much and was, was trying to analyze some of these deeper questions. I, I really thank a game like Earthbound and for the, some of the other texts that I mentioned that just let me be a, a bit more well-rounded with, with the questions I was asking, just not accepting things at face value, understanding that adults are complicated people, right? That it, that yeah. it's not just, they are not just spitting uh, truth at you. They're speaking through their lens of truth and you need to di- dissect what that is, right? And you will be better off for that when you understand what their perspective is. So even if it's something like that minuscule of being able to question your elders in a, in a smart, exploratory way, or it's uh, wanting to dismantle uh, capitalism and tear it up by the roots, just like Gigas, you know, I, I think there's something for a lot of different people to, to pull from this. And no, it's something I go back to today. 
I think it's one of my biggest reference points. I can compare a lot of things that I see, no matter what, to a moment in Earthbound or something like that. So it, it continues to be a text that inspires me. Beautifully put. Thank you so much for saying all that, uh, which brings me to my next thing. Uh, we talked about how it's influenced your life. Uh, we've talked about the, the things that it's influenced. This is one of my favorite parts of the show where I ask you to recommend to listeners something about you or something that you think connects to Earthbound in some way. So what are some things that you love that you would recommend to listeners that connect to Earthbound? Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it, it's super obvious, but I have to say like, like Undertale in so many ways is my mother three, I, I would say, right? I feel like that was the game that I was waiting for for so long. I feel like it, it touches on that. It modernizes uh, some of the arguments. It, it really takes a look at, like you said, at, at pacifism and about the use of violence and what happens when you create a system where violence is, is not the answer or where violence just continuously makes life worse for everyone involved, where even one singular loss uh, in that monster world can have a, a deleterious effect on everything that goes on. I, I think it's so well done. I, I love how that game's put together and every part of it. I've listened to that soundtrack a million times uh, since. I probably have listened to that more than Earthbound. When I get my Spotify recap, I'm always at like the top 1% for Toby Fox listeners. And I'm just, <laughs> I just like, I love, like, I put it on at work just constantly. And people walk by and are like, what are you listening to? Because it's, uh, dogs barking jingle bells at points and, and very silly songs just like the earthbound soundtrack but it yeah. is something that speaks to me on a lot of different levels there's the music the themes uh the the battle system is unique it's everything i talked about that i loved about earthbound exists there in some way so i think if you haven't played it you're like there's a wonderful uh starting text for you uh you mentioned lisa i think lisa is is another wonderful take of the same premise uh definitely much darker i think it's much less hopeful than a lot of the themes in Earthbound, but if that's more your style and you don't want to get into the cutesier stuff that I think Earthbound has, you want to get away from the Nintendo element of this, I think Lisa does a very good job of that. I feel like it sucks the Nintendo uh, charm out of it, not in a bad way, but it presents it in a much more dire uh, set of circumstances. So if, if that's more your style, definitely check out Lisa. It is a, a, a really unique experience that you know I haven't played anything like in Man, you talk about a game that you turn off and you are analyzing the choices that you have made and the things that have happened in that. Wow. I don't know. There's just nothing that beats it. I've never played Lisa. I've played Undertale more than once and I've played through Deltarune and love it quite a bit. But mm -hmm. Lisa, I'll have to get to. It always looked like I didn't know. I was like, that's clearly if it was by Earthbound, but I'll have to play it at your recommendation. Yes, yes. And I mean, you can breeze through it, too. It, it'll be, you know, maybe a five to 10 hour playthrough uh, mm -hmm. at most as you do it. But it's amazing. I don't want to spoil anything for you. But, uh, you know, you are going to go on a, a ride, an emotional uh, and cathartic exploration of yourself during that game. It's masterful. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Do you have any other recommendations that you want to give that connect to you or Earthbound in any way? No, I mean, I mentioned Nier uh, earlier. I would like put that out there. I don't know that it has similar DNA as Earthbound. I'm just going to say like as the as the JRPG uh, space goes, uh, you know, that's just probably the other one uh, since then. And now Final Fantasy VII Remake, which we touched on, that really just impacted me, that I thought really looked at complex themes, that really took it beyond the game itself. And just made me fall in love with the characters, with, with all of it, and like play through it again and again and again. 
Right on. No, thank you. Uh, and of course, I got to give my recommendations too. So you've already recommended Undertale and Deltarune. First and foremost, uh, if you love the tone and style of Earthbound, I have to recommend the film True Stories, uh, which I can confidently call one of my favorite films of all time. I am a huge Talking Heads fan. Uh, and this movie was the first and only film directed by the the band's frontman, David Byrne. There's a satirical edge to the film that gives it this heightened reality. Uh, there's a surreal feel to everything that goes on. There's like a slight offness that could invite comparisons to the works of David Lynch. But at its core, it's a very deeply, deeply sincere and empathetic film with a lot of empathy and love for its subjects. Uh, it's not condescending whatsoever. And it's a film that endears itself to weirdos and... <laughs> also makes insightful observations about human nature uh, between absurd musical sequences that are talking head songs. Great uh, talking head songs like Dream Operator and Wild Wild Life. Dream Operator seriously is an amazing song. <laughs> to give a very brief description of it, it takes place in a small fictional town of Virgil, Texas, no relation, uh, <laughs> which is holding a special celebration of specialness. I'm not being cute about Earthbound. That is exactly how David Byrne's character pronounces it. He says specialness. Perfect. <laughs> uh, I mentally clocked that. I was like, holy shit. That's so good. How could you be anywhere on the nose? David Byrne's character's eccentricities and uh, his role as the narrator give the film a feeling like I'm watching this town from the perspective of aliens, which also mentally helps me connect it to Earthbound in some way. So it's like small town Americana, that alien foreign feel to it, mm. fun, new wavy music. Easy, easy, easy recommendation for that. Uh, the tonal landscape of Earthbound is just like the talking heads in every, every way. It's punk sensibilities with Afrobeat music. It's an eclectic style that is in the Mother series, uh, as well as the discography of the talking heads. Uh, so it, it just in addition to True Stories, I'm just going to recommend the music of talking heads. Listen to Remain in Light if you're going to pick out a specific album. Watch the Stop Making Sense concert film. That's, that's one of the best concert films of all time. While I recommend music, uh, when I was taking... My notes for this and doing my research, I listened to Spirit Phone by Lemon Demon and Time and Place by Kiro Kiro Benito. Also just fun little quirky albums that kind of remind me of Earthbound, sonically. Those are just perfect recommendations. That's just wonderful. Oh, I have I have, I have one more recommendation, actually. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. I have, to, I have to emphasize it again. When we talked about the localization, I mentioned Fully Cooly, and I also just highly recommend it for the, the content as well, uh, not just because of the localization, uh, just the vibe of the show is reminiscent of Earthbounds. It's heightened reality, absurdism, pop culture references. It's it's bright. It's kinetic. It's does a juvenile approach to serious subjects while also like treating them with with seriousness. Uh, it's animated by the company Gynex that did mm -hmm. uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. So it's beautifully beautifully rendered and animated. And best of all, it's only six episodes long, twenty minutes a piece. So you can burn through the whole thing in two hours easily. So those are my recommendations. I have some listener comments if you want to stick around while I read a couple of them. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so I asked the people on the official Select and Start Twitter page at Select Pod Start to give me their thoughts on Earthbound. And I'm going to read a few of them here on the show. Georgia Lux, a.k.a. at Trough of Luxury, said... The official strategy guide it got packaged with for its US release is in a lot of ways better produced than the game itself. Obviously, the bigger SNES carts were letting RPG writers be more eloquent on screen, and Earthbound felt like a last hurrah of solid but sparse in-cartridge world building being supplemented by a robust manual. Which goes into what you were saying earlier about like that era of video games, mm -hmm. uh, that real world. 
connection to the game that you have physically in your hand. Any any additional thoughts on that? No, no, just you're good people. Whoever made that comment, I, I, I agree very much. I love this strategy guide. I talked a lot about it earlier. Uh, Dre, friend of the pod, my next guest, and also in our group chat, uh, <laughs> aka at Pizza Dinosaur, uh, he said, I found this game at a Kmart bargain bin in 1997, banged up and unloved. I got it because it, quote, it used to be expensive behind that familiar locked glass store game case. Uh, little did I know it would become one of the more unforgettable and touching adventures I'd ever embark on. I'm a contrarian by nature, and when it comes to what are considered the top SNES classics, I disagree with the status of most of them. Not Earthbound, though. It's every bit as good as people say it is. I mean, if you know PD, I, I think that that says everything that you want. You know, I, I think we, we go toe to toe with PD on a lot of uh, <laughs> his takedowns of classics and things like that. So I, I think it says a lot about Earthbound that that it, it stands up to his scrutiny and you know the place on these lists. You know, sometimes I think these best of lists were some they were all things that were made 20 years ago and. Sometimes they really do need looked at and relitigated, and I think uh, PD does a really good job with that. And uh, you know, separating some stinkers out of that to be like, you know, mm-hmm. listen, you love that at the time, but you wouldn't if you played it for ten minutes today. Yeah, he has a healthy sense of skepticism, so I wouldn't call him a contrarian like he would. But I, I enjoy the Fine Time podcast, and he's a good friend, and I'm glad he loves Earthbound. Also from the Fine Time podcast, a monotone gent wrote in, and he said. I keep citing Earthbound at my personal favorite of all time for a reason, or rather, all the little things. Yes, to look at it now, quote, oh, it's antiquated and too much like Dragon Quest, but that's a very narrow way to look at it. There's a bizarre sense of humor that permeates the whole game, from the art, the rolling number combat system, and even in the characters. It's not all haha laughs, but it's a world that actually feels like it needs you to save it. It sounds trivial now, but when my brain eats itself from whatever else, I'm still going to remember the naive genius Mr. Saturns, the Runaway Five, even that lady in the bakery who told me the story about the fly in her soup that had nothing to do with her adventure. (laughs) And we all ignored it at the time. Even me. I had to rescue my copy sans guide from Blockbuster getting read the the rest of their SNES stock. Uh, This was the game that made me pay attention to all the little games out there. Lots of lit torches that Earthbound sparked here. Yeah, it's so funny that guys and girls and everyone else of your generation just have the same earthbound story uh finding a physical copy of it when like people were just getting rid of the backstock of a generation absolutely and i i love his point about the little touches that that make this game exactly what it is and i I think it's really telling that you know i had dragon quest I, i had that for the nas i had uh the original zelda and you know those those sat there i did not play those games i did not really get into rpgs uh, until Earthbound, and then like then you know I was ready, and I started revisiting a lot of those. So I, I think it was again so formative in, in how I look like to look at video games and what I was into, and then it gave me an appreciation for what those uh, RPGs were trying earlier, and then I was ready to experience them. Jared, I had an amazing time talking to you about this incredible game. I, I mean it. This is a really great, really great time I had with you. I hope you had fun too. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast talking about this game. <laughs> you know, at first, like, I'm like, what am I going to say and talk like that? And by the end, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of, of some of the things I, w- I want to talk about here. So thanks for, you know, hearing me out on, on the fun stuff, on the, you know, the esoteric stuff, and as well as like some of the deeper things that I think really affect me about this. No, you're perfect. And you had a lot of great stuff to say. And I'm glad I picked you for the Earthbound episode. Thank you for recommending this game. I I feel changed by it. I genuinely do. Please, please promote yourself and tell the listeners where they can find you. 
absolutely. Uh, you can follow me. Uh, I'm at, at Ham Sandcastle uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can just find uh, my irreverent commentary on the events of the day and uh, just yeah, really in the pocket jokes about Star Wars or whatever. We're usually discussing it in a DM when we come up with a bit uh, <laughs> and then turn it loose uh, into the world. Uh, so, yeah, we have a lot of fun with that. I'm happy to chat with you about literally anything. I love talking Star Wars, video games. Uh, Kingdom Hearts, especially if you want to talk to me about deep lore of Kingdom Hearts, you know, reach out to me. This is just you know, one of the many pockets of things that, that I'm into. But yeah, feel free to follow me. Just reach out and say hello or anything like that. We've mentioned Kingdom Hearts on this podcast too many times. Eventually, we're just going to have to bite the bullet and eventually do the episode with somebody. We'll we'll see who. Um, <laughs> Jared, thank you so much. This is an awesome episode. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show and your feedback will help improvement. And if you want to get more engaged, uh, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Earthbound or any other games we discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon now. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. I've never done this live before. I feel pretty good about that take, though. Art for this show was made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Jared's Twitter account. All right. I think that's it. Say fuzzy pickles. Fuzzy pickles. was my formative get back into gaming moment.